Welcome to episode 8 of the Trapidemic Podcast with me, Alex P. Wilson. I'm joined today by Professor Chris Rowe. Chris is a professor of psychology at the University of Northampton. He's research leader for the psychology division and director of the Center for the Study of Anomalous Psychological Processes, CSAP group, which is undergoing a change as the faculty revamp, so we'll see uh, what the result of that is. He's a, a psychologist, became the first person from the UK to receive the Parapsychological Association's Award for Outstanding Contribution to Parapsychology. His research interests are around understanding the nature of anomalous experiences and the psychology of paranormal belief. But we barely talk about any of that. <laughs> we uh, talk about higher education and, and learning and really the goals that you should have as a student and what to get out of those sort of things and all kinds of stuff. We talk about history and just cool stuff. And uh, I hope you enjoy. So, welcome to Trapidemic Podcast, episode 8, with uh, from the University of Northampton, Professor Chris Rowe. So, well, actually, you can be right next to it. Actually, it'll probably be better for the sound. So about there. Yeah, if you can just have it like right in front of your mouth. I clean them every time, so no, you're that's not fine. Got... <laughs> I'm not concerned about it. <clears throat> I'm sure I've caught everything that's going. <laughs> and if I'm looking down, it's because I'm doing this. It's mm-hmm. not because I'm not listening. Uh, well, as long as you don't do the usual interviewer trick, which is just lots of nods all the time, like some kind of nod. Oh, no, I'll be listening, yeah. but I have to look away to make yeah. sure it's actually still recording. I'm sure on the training program, they have a couple of things about back-channel signals, and they, they don't understand the purpose of them. Right. So, of course, occasionally, if you're the listener, it's important that you nod and smile, but not manically, like this yeah, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's just off-putting. Yeah, does that happen in radio interviews, then? Are they just... Um, no, it's more when when you're face to face with somebody and they're right. recording something. So it might be to tape, yeah. but you know they'd be opposite you at a table like this. Uh, they can get a bit, bit off putting for that reason. I mean, you learn very quickly in the, in that setting to speak in sound bites. Yeah, um, that's what they want anyway, isn't it? Exactly. One of the Chris Mar- Morris vehicles. I remember one time, I forget who it was. Now they said that Margaret Thatcher had died. I think, and that was the spoof. Obviously, she hadn't. Right. And they, they collared an MP just outside Parliament and said, Margaret Thatcher's died, what have you got to say? And he, you know, and says, well, how long do you want? And they said something like 15 seconds. And he spoke for 15 seconds. And he just has a... It just, off the top of his head, but it was succinct, it was rounded sentences. And that's one of the things you learn when you're being recorded, is to try and speak in ways that they can't chop up. Yeah. And make it say something else. That's why this show's two hours or, yeah. or like an hour because I can't do that. You can't be taken out of context. No. Like, <laughs> that's rewarding the wrong skill, isn't it? If, it, if our politicians are just people that can speak in sound bites, that's rewarding the wrong skill. Of, of course it is. But the problem is that's the media industry. Yeah. It's not necessarily the MPs. They don't necessarily start out that way. 
course, it's really frustrating when people won't give you a straight answer to anything then for fear of being caught out. And, of course, you are. You're hung out to dry, I think, in that setting. Yeah. If you say something, you know, which is slightly off message, you know, you, you're kind of crucified for it, which which is ridiculous. Instead of people just being human beings yeah. who offer an opinion, and sometimes they change their minds because they've had a chance to think about it. And then it. they're called flip-floppers. Exactly. You know, you can't win in those yeah. situations. Yeah, the blame goes on both, I think. Because the politician mm. doesn't answer the straight question, mm. but they don't answer a straight question because it's the job of the media to trip them up. Yeah. And it's obvious that when you look at like Andrew Marr or whatever, he's asking oh. you questions in order to trip you up. Absolutely. Um, which is Diane his job. Diane a great example of that. Yeah. It's on purpose. That's mm. his job because then it's, it's going to go viral or it's going to be really popular. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the same is true in science, though, as well. I, I've written in the past about um, conservative and liberal scientists. Right. And the conservatives are one who want to be absolutely sure before they'll make any kind of declaration about something because it'd be so embarrassing for them if later on it turned out to be a wrong position. Mm-hmm. And I'm at the other end. I'm quite a liberal scientist in that I'm quite happy to say, well, on the balance of evidence just now, this is where I am. I'd be quite happy to find out in five years' time that I was completely wrong. Yeah. There's a, a new way to explain it. It doesn't undermine me at all, I don't think. You say that, you say, yeah, I thought that then. Now we've got some new stuff going Plus, on. Plus, in theory, I mean, hopefully you'll have done something in those five years yeah. else and, and probably in the same field. So you hopefully will progress in your own ideas anyway. Yeah, I think so. It is. It's okay to prove yourself wrong. Yeah. I think it's really difficult to find a project which was completely a waste of time. Even if the idea turns out to have been false, you learn so much along the way that, you know, I think it kind of makes it all worthwhile. And you never know that there might be something you learn from that that ultimately has an application in something that is more fruitful. Yeah. And you wouldn't know really at the time. You're better just kind of embracing whatever goes on, throw yourself into it wholeheartedly, hope for the best. Yeah. Me and Carl spoke a little bit about that because he sort of introduced parapsychology. Hmm. And obviously I'm... I approach it as a from a skeptical position, mm-hmm. um, but I try and approach everything that way if yeah. I can. It's when I no longer can think of an excuse that then <laughs> that then I'm interested and then I'm I'm bought in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he, I mean, we were talking about sort of bias in reporting only positive yeah. sort of results, and we got into cognitive psychology in that case. Oh, okay. With, you know, if you run ten trials and one out of ten works, that's the one that gets published. Mm. And you don't even offer the other nine. Well, I've written about that, actually. Mm. In, in the thing I wrote, which is biographical, I was talking about a PhD a graduate here, so a member of staff that I knew. And and she'd done a cog psych PhD that she'd finished before she came here, but she was in the process of writing up individual papers. Mm. And she had ten experiments in her PhD, which is a little bit more than par for the course, but it's not excessive. You know, yeah. the quite quick and dirty kind of studies. You can certainly run a whole experiment in a week, mm. you know. Um, and of those 10, only two were consistent with the paradigm she was working in. And they were the only two that got published. Yeah. You know, so, and it's quite scary. And another guy who started his PhD here uh, gave, it, gave up his PhD because he was unable to replicate the core phenomenon. You needed that core phenomenon before you then started to mess around with it and find out something more about its limitations. And he just couldn't get the original thing to happen. Did he do a different PhD or did he just, he just give dropped up? out? I mean, he just done something else. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but he kind of devoted 18 months to this. And I guess through that, he discovered that, you know, that kind of tenacity wasn't really him. Yeah. You know, and that very, very delayed gratification probably it's, wasn't yeah. a great model to, to live by. Yeah. 
yeah, you have to sort of get some gratification in the process. The, the fact that you're even doing it. Yeah. You should just be happy. <laughs> that's why here. we push folks like yourself who are doing the PhDs to yeah. do teaching as well. I mean, that was my experience when I was an un- when I was a, a, a doctoral student. The day to day gratification was having sessions that went well, getting feedback from students, things mm-hmm. like that. That's where you built your kind of bonds. And, you know, it would, it would take six to nine months before you saw any return on, on your investment now yeah. in terms of a research project. Um, I'm, as my supervisor, in terms of not being very good at just giving positive feedback on the transcripts, you know, I, 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 my other half works in a primary school and she's much more used to having gold stars and thumbs yeah. up and things. And it does <coughs> kind of seem patronising when you're doing that with adults. <laughs> yeah. I'm not comfortable with it. But I think there is a need for that sometimes to let people know, yeah, absolutely, you're on the right track. Here are some things we can work on. But all people take away from them are, these bits are a bit crap. Yeah, you know, you but it might only them. need that one line. It might be yeah. like, these are the things that I need to do. But overall, like, we're really happy with this or whatever. And I think that's all it should yeah. take for most people. I'm a little bit different because I'm a little bit like, whatever. I just sort of get on with it. I'm <laughs> yeah, a little bit laid back. But, <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think some people, because you only listen to the bad things, don't you? You really... That's what you, you take could, away. Yeah, you could yeah. say 10 nice things and the, the one spelling mistake that's embarrassing that you brought mm. up that's what I'm going to dwell on for the next six months or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're really bad at, at, at taking anything positive. The students are. Yes. I know the undergraduates are. Mm. I don't know if that comes from school or just the way people are generally. Well, probably, but yeah. probably. Mm. Yeah, I think we're more sensitive, aren't we, to negative stuff. Yeah. And although ultimately flattery works, um, there is part of us that's going, oh, get on. Yeah. You know? So it is awkward. Yeah, I think that's very British, though, to not want to be. Absolutely. Like, I'm really awkward in, like, awards or yeah, or just anyone saying, you know, like, oh, he's done, re- like, especially in basketball, like, if he's in the locker room yeah. or something, someone will be like, Alex has done this today, and I'm like, <laughs> just don't say it, you know, we know, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, but I, I, I learned something from my brother who's very successful in business, and he tore apart an application I made for a promotion. Because it was, I mean, it wasn't just the light was under a bushel, you know, it was kind of hidden under the rainforest, you know, and you really need, I think, to take ownership of the stuff that you've done that's positive, because other people do. Yeah. And if you're demure for too long, people, it's like that idea, you know, if you, if you somebody says, that was fantastic the way you played today, and you say, oh, was, some of it was just a little bit lucky, and then they go, oh, you're probably right. Yeah. That's... You're really deflated by that. Yeah. But ultimately, people will take that view. If you constantly deflate they're in the end going to uh, attribute your talents to circumstance and not to you. It's almost like manners, though. If, if they're saying, you know, it's if I say, yeah, it was lucky, and they're like, oh, you may be right. Yeah. My instinct then is to be like, no, it wasn't. I'm, I was, I'm just good. I'm joking. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm just being polite. It was yeah. good. I just don't want you to feel bad yeah. that I'm this good or whatever. <laughs> that's my I think that's a particularly true for intellectual ability. Yeah. yeah I think it's easier to own a sporting... Um, expertise or talent or um, artistic talent and it's harder intellectually because there's such an inverted snobbery in this culture I think that if you know you say well actually yeah I'm quite clever I can think things through fairly quickly that is seen as a kind of bragging that is completely inappropriate Hmm. whereas you know yeah I can run faster than these other guys I'm actually you know more limber than they are at doing this thing or that thing you can get away with that as a statement of fact and that, that seems like an odd yeah uh, yes, I mean, sports is... Di- That's really loud. <laughs> sports are... Um, I don't know if you can hear that, but I can. It's, I, I heard some kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's weird hearing <laughs> myself, like, half a second after. 
Yeah. Yeah, this is... That's no, not going to work, is no, it? No, that's going to be too close. Yeah. Um, yeah, sports is unique in in lots of things, but I take lots of lessons from from sport. The main one that I take from sport, obviously, is it's not like the praise and thing. It's the hard work mm. and that just being obsessed. Because when you're a kid, you, you want to be a professional because mm. for at some point in your childhood, you're taught that that thing that you really love uh, produces lots of money and that money is important. Mm. You think, to be happy, I need money because dad doesn't have money and dad's not happy. <laughs> so it must be money, right? Right. Because maybe dad thinks it's it's about money. So you devote your entire life. And there's two kinds of players. There's people that devote their life for the money. Mm. And when they get a big contract, then all of a sudden their performance starts to fall off. Uh. And we see that a lot in sports. Mm. You know, they've just got paid whatever, 24 million a year. And uh, now they, they start to... Or they just got bought by Man City. Now they yeah. get a giant contract and all mm. of a sudden they're never playing. Mm. And then they're, they're done after that. Yeah. Because even then when they go to a lower club, they've got that financial security. Because... Mostly they're not stupid with money. Yeah. They've got good people around them. The teams look after them. Whereas if you take those... That's why the FA Cup's so great. You take, mm. you know, part-time plumbers who are literally doing it because they enjoy football. Yeah. Because yeah. it would be easier for them if they didn't play. Yeah, yeah. They'd have, they could probably work more shifts or they'd have more time with their family. Yeah. Like, they're paying a cost to play football. Mm. And you can just see that in the way they tackle when they get injured, they just get on with it. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it's. I mean, there are two aspects of that. Aren't there? There's the hunger, first of all. On the way up, you have that hunger. There are things that you strive for and you've not achieved them yet. And of course, once you've achieved them, then some of that hunger goes, which is uh, why it's believed, isn't it, that it's easier to become a champion than to remain a champion. Yeah. You know, kind of Rocky style in the movies. Uh, the other bit is, is obviously cognitive dissonance. It's the idea that if there are extraneous rewards for something, then it devalues the merit of the thing itself. So if you're spending your Tuesdays and Thursdays and, and Saturday mornings to play mm. on the Sunday, and you're getting no f money or anything for that, and no recognition from anybody, it's for the love of the thing itself. Yeah. But if you know, you're turning up for training because you're being paid shed loads, then it's very easy for you to say, well, I'm doing this because I'm being paid shed loads. Yeah. The thing itself has less merit now. <clears throat> so you've got those kind of problems. I don't know how you get around that. Yeah, it's a, it would be a really difficult balance to to strike. Mm. You know, if I was getting paid ridiculous amounts to play sport, like if I was off, if I could still do other things, like in psychology, I one hundred percent would, mm. because there's that grounding. Same as if I'm in psychology as I am now, there's a release in going and playing sport or doing whatever. I think everyone needs a, a thing that you do that's not your thing. Yeah, definitely or something that you're crap at mm. that then you can go and try and be better at mm. um, if you don't have like a, another thing to do but it's difficult I, I think to strike that balance between you know I'm at work and paying me this much money means I can devote more time to mm. football mm. so I can be a better footballer because you're giving me money yeah. or I'm a footballer because you're giving me money yeah because you have to have a bit of both yeah because you, you have to be professional enough to say because the team will tr pay you less if they can. Mm -hmm. You have to be professional enough to say, no, I'm worth more than that. I'm not going to do that for yeah. free. But on the flip side, also sort of keep your love of the game. and Yeah. It's very yeah. difficult to do. Well, that's the kind of David Beckham model, isn't it? He was um, famous for 
putting in the extra hours of practice when other people had gone, even after he, you know, was stellar famous. Um, and I think, yeah, there's something about that. And it's, it's personal pride, isn't it? It's part of that. But it's very tough. I mean, thinking about my own experience, there are things like being asked to write a book review. And then there's a book that you wanted to read anyway, so you've agreed to do the review. And suddenly, it's the last thing on your list. You push it down and down. You know, you're not really... Mm. Suddenly, your heart sinks every time you think about, well, I've got to do that book review, because it's suddenly become a piece of work. Yeah. Even though actually getting to grips with that book and reading this person's ideas was exactly what you wanted to do. It's almost something you've saved to like the Christmas vacation or something. Yeah. You get some free time to do it. And it suddenly flip-flops. Yeah. And it isn't something you're looking forward to. It's, it's a bizarre thing. Yeah, that's, in, that's just like the getting a big contract. Yeah. And you've worked your whole life to get this giant contract and now you've got it. Yeah. Now you don't care anymore yeah. about football. You've won. <laughs> like, the game's over. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I never I never really thought about that in, in other, in other, like, ventures, in other careers, but I guess it... It must be the case in all except those crazy billionaire types. Yeah. Because they're constant. But I think it's the difference between preparation, so kind of the practice, uh, the training that goes into it, and the event itself. Mm-hmm. I think the event itself still allows you to be in the state of flow. And I think something like a lecture can be like that as well. You know, you can be really enjoying moment by moment sharing the information that you've put together. Mm-hmm. And, and that absolutely is rewarding. It goes back to what we were saying before about delayed gratification for your PhD. You can certainly have those moments, you know, in teaching, for example. Yeah. And absolutely, I, I would imagine no matter who these players are, no matter what sport we're talking about, it is the difference between, well, for many anyway, between playing on a, a sports day, you know, I don't want to just say Saturday, and, and when you're there doing it, it's a completely different experience. Then you remember why it is you do this. But then you've got the other six days of the week yeah. you've got to get through in order to get back to that. Yeah, that's that's where the money, that's why sportsmen are paid. Mm. But I always, every time, students make this argument a lot because it seems to be like a sort of a liberal argument to make that footballers shouldn't be paid what they are right? and nurses and stuff should be paid more. Yep. Nurses should be paid more. But I always use the example of the students. Imagine if you wrote an essay for your assignments, which you do all the time. So you wrote this essay and the university made millions and millions off that essay mm. and didn't have to give you anything. Yeah. You would be mad, which is why agents ask football teams to pay the players a lot of money. Yeah. They can take their 5%, whatever, 2%, 10%. But the amount of value in advertising and television rights and all of that stuff... Yeah that each player brings. So Christian, if you have Cristiano Ronaldo on, if he played for Scunthorpe, Scunthorpe would be on television and they'd have enough money pretty soon to have the new stadium and they'd be a bigger club and so on and so on and so on. They'd bring in all this revenue, which is why he could demand the salary. And as soon as I put that to them that way, mm. they kind of change their tune. They're like, oh yeah, I guess. But nurses should still be paid more. Yeah. They should. They bring a different kind of value, but it's not monetary value, which is the only reason they're not paid more. Yeah, but it still reflects a perversity in society about what people value with their wallets. Yeah, it's our fault. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me, there's a, an, a scene in one of The Simpsons where Krista the Clown is uh, jacking it all in, and Bart Simpson turns him around by saying, you know, well, if you're not there doing this, they're going to give all your money to people like nurses and doctors. <laughs> and that's the thing that turns him around, you yeah. know. Why should they be getting this uh, cannoli or whatever you would call it, you know? <laughs> it should be come, all coming to me. You know, I'm the one that ultimately deserves it, you know. 
Jennifer Lawrence doesn't deserve the kind of money she earns. She has a talent, but it's not um, a talent that is out of proportion to the various other talents that people in the population have yeah. that would merit that kind of leap in, in remuneration. That, that's the bizarre thing. The other problem, of course, is there's only one Jennifer Lawrence, but, you know, there are, what, maybe 30,000, 40,000 nurses in the UK, and you'd have to raise all of their income. So, you know, that, that's why that's not going to happen. Yeah, it just comes down to the value, doesn't it? Uh, well, and what we, But the value of what we value as yeah, consumers. And, but it, it also preys on um, inherent value as well. So many of the um, industries, that, um, the occupations that suffer, are especially vocational. And again, I'm thinking of things like being a primary school teacher. Yeah. You know, you work extremely long hours. You don't get these long summers off. Um, there's lots of paperwork. Um, and people continue to do it despite all of the demands for not a lot of money in you know relative terms. Um, firemen, I think, are exactly the same. I know a fireman who is always complaining about the, the kind of amount of money that they get. Um and so on. I mean, GPs may be an exception, but they work long hours as well. But they, they typically, I think, they're on about 100,000. Um, so that may be a little bit different. But you get that sense that people who commit to a particular career because there's something inherent in it, mm-hmm. that then... But uh, when you take a broader view, you, you can. it goes back to what we started with when you were talking about how everything... Does it all condense down to uh, financial remuneration? Yeah. And, of course, it doesn't, you know... Um, it's quality of life and that sense of making a difference. Now, that's one of the key things is being able on your deathbed to look back on what you've done in your life and talk in Jack Black terms about how you've touched all these people. You know, <laughs> I've touched these kids and I'm pretty sure they've touched me. Um, but that kind of sense to have really made an impact, to have changed people's lives for the better mm-hmm. is absolutely something that a lot of those careers have in common. I'm sure it's also true, you know, if you're Aguero or somebody, you know, um, You've made a, a tangible difference to people's lives. I mean, the kids Absolutely. you see every day, yeah, and they'll they'll love you. Even like a, we we get kids run up to us after games, and we signed. Brilliant, yeah. And I'm thinking you could just come up to me in the street, like I'm, I'm yeah, like I'm really yeah. like this is just a, a thing that we do for for fun. But the kids just love that because they see that you're like six inches taller than dad and mom, and <laughs> like they want to come and and uh, they see you as the people that they see on television. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is cool, and part that's partly also why they get paid as much as they do footballers as well, mm. because although they're not role models, it was a big campaign from a basketball player called Charles Barkley in the eighties or nineties. He had a, a Nike commercial called "I'm Not Your Role Model," mm. where it's like, "It's not my job to raise your kids. Yes. I'm not your role model," and it has like fake swearing that's bleeped out and all mm. of that stuff. And, um, but they kind of are. You know, so when Rooney swears into the television camera yeah. or when they talk back, if you watch kids play football, the way they talk to the referee mm. is all from television. <laughs> because in other sports where they don't do that, rugby, for instance, right. the kids don't talk to the refs that way. Yeah. Because yeah. on television, the pros can't do that. that. Yeah, absolutely. You get these giant men scared of some tiny little referee because yeah. he's got a microphone or mm. whatever. But, you know, you are setting an example for these kids and you are a role model, even though you shouldn't you are, be. and you're not. I think, I mean, Wayne Rooney is a really good case in point because... Uh, to a degree, his family are set up to be role models because Colleen Rooney's um, business has in part come out because of her relationship with him and because their kids, to a degree, are in the public eye mm-hmm. and, and they've allowed that. There are other people whose kids you never see 
in the media at all. Yeah. You know, that's completely shut down. And for those people who have a clear separation between their professional life and their personal life, you know, I, I think I've got a lot more sympathy for them that actually know they're not setting themselves up as role models in that way. You know, they're, they're not elevating themselves as better people. They, they just they have this one thing that they're very good at, and they're happy to share that because it gives other people pleasure, albeit they're being paid for that. Yeah. But that's as far as it should go, you know, with, with MPs as well. As long as MPs are doing their job and are not distracted by all this pornography they're watching during their working day, <laughs> yeah. the guy who was sacked today, um, they can do what they like, frankly. But it, as long as they I mean, Winston Churchill is a, a classic case in point of somebody who was extremely difficult, you know, but he was still able to be highly functional. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want him for, not for all the other things. The worry, though, is with MPs, the idea of celebrity. So a, a politician should never be on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Right, right. Because they're not a celebrity. Yeah, yeah. They're a, they're a politician. Yeah. I mean, they're public servant. Yeah. Um, you know, you shouldn't ask Jeremy Corbyn for an autograph. No. Just because you see him on TV. Yeah. Or, you know, you're supposed to have some kind of regular contact with these people in some way. Mm. I mean, that was the idea when the system set up. You get the one person in the village that can read mm. to go and give all the proles ideas on what should be done. <laughs> you go to the House of Commons because you're commoners and you go and talk to these people and then the Lords debate what you've, what the people have come up with. Mm. Difference is now, like, every MP is not the people. We can all read and I can tweet my MP if I knew who that was mm. right now. Mm. So I don't need a representative so much. Right, right. Um, but there's no other there's no other system that I always think if it's safe enough to bank online, why can't we vote online? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I, I'm cheap. I don't, I, you know. I mean, if I trust it for my money, mm. I think I should be able to trust it for. Well, exactly. I don't have voting. a problem with that at all. I mean, I guess as a danger, it still excludes certain um, segments of the population. You've got kind of particularly older people. Uh, that might have solved the Brexit problem. If, if older <laughs> people weren't allowed to vote, but I think having the polling stations excludes a lot of the population because yeah. sometimes yeah. I'm at work, yeah, exactly, and I don't exactly. work at a place with a polling station, yeah. or or whatever it is. If I'm somewhere I can't leave, yeah, then I'm not voting, you know, and I'm excluded that way. Yeah. Or if there's something I want to do, like if I I work sometimes I'm in London, sometimes I'm in Birmingham, but if I'm registered to vote in London, but I'm in Birmingham, then I'm not voting that day, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm working. Yeah, you're hammered by that. Whereas if it's if it's online, you can still have polling stations. Mm. Just have polling stations with computers in mm. that people can come in and you can help them and say, yeah. this is how you do it. You click on one of these buttons. Yep. So one means this, two means this, exactly. three means this, four and means this. And it can still be in confidence. You know, you set them up to know what the choices are and how to do it, how to exercise their right. Then you can step back and let them get on with it. Yeah. Yeah, that would work. I can't think of any reason why they're not doing that. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not going to say they're not doing it because then they can fudge the results, mm. uh, which many conspiracy theorists would say, <laughs> I guess. That it's because then they can miscount. I mean, they're still all counted by hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you can mark multiple choice exams with a machine. Yeah. Voting is way more important than, you know, a multiple Absolutely. choice exam. But we're still doing it, still doing things in this stupid way. Yeah, but then we still have Black Rod. Don't we? We still have a process whereby you've got messengers who, who carry bills from one house to the other house. I don't even and know about that. Central corridor between the two, like, all the nods, and they're all oh yeah, all the gowns, stuff, yeah. and the seventeenth century gowns. 
you know. So we're it's still religion, isn't that. it? That's like a religion. Yeah, yeah. Politics, and they've got their Jerusalem in Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 weird. I used to watch it. I used to watch the House of Commons, so BBC mm. uh, Parliament. I used to watch the parliamentary debates. So if you watch it when it's not like a when it's not on BBC News, you're watching mm. just normal. It's on twenty four hours a day. It's um, there's like three people in the chamber, mm. and there's someone making someone who's sort of maybe new to their political career, backbencher, who's making this really important point about change and what they want to do and and what should be happening and these people that've been ignored and nobody's there to listen to it because you have to sit at the back and pay your dues for however many years and the same thing happens in the American Congress mm. so you come in like Obama for example you come in wanting to change the world and you have to serve 10 years as a yes man mm. or yes woman in order to get to the point where you have a message by then you know someone's already vetted your questions in this mm. country and told you what you can and can't say yeah the chief whip has told you what to ask if you haven't got anything good uh, to set the prime minister up or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very difficult because you've got the, the party allegiance and you do have the, the whips to whip them in. Um, and that's what happens in situations like that. So you'll have yeah. a debate where there's very few people around um, and then it comes to the vote and suddenly they all emerge from their offices um, <laughs> and, you know, as if they'd been parties to the whole thing. Um I don't know how necessary that is, really, because yeah. I, I suppose nothing would ever be achieved if everything was on such a knife edge that one person's oration would make a big difference to the outcome. So I think a long point... I mean, and obviously the bills are scrutinised away from that. Yeah. And that includes the kind of commentaries. I mean, I remember working in um, local government during my summers as a student and was regularly sent off to print off segments from Hansard, which is the official document for uh, Parliament. Right. It records verbatim every single contribution in the House. It's all printed, it's printed daily, and it builds up, and it's just ridiculously enormous. But it's a crucial piece of documentation, you know, because people can be called to task for the things that they've said. Um, you know, um, if they're found to have misled the House, for example, that's a very serious issue. So those kind of things are built mm -hmm. into that. So even if people are not there, and I presume people can watch it on telly if they're not in the chamber. You know, yeah. they can still watch it up in their offices or something. So that kind of thing goes on. Yeah. But it is difficult. I mean, it's funny, really, when you see things like Prime Minister's questions or, or similar. So when there's a main statement such as uh, the budget speech, yeah. and then you get the, um, the government and then the opposition responding immediately, then a little bit later you get something like the Lib Dems and they all huddle together around this one person. So it looks like there's loads of people still in the house, but most people are buggered off right by then. So they zoom so they just the camera, sit together. So it's them and maybe five people sat around them <laughs> and, and they speak as if they're talking to, you know, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who's probably gone for his dinner, you know, <laughs> by then. Yeah, most of how it works is sort of, I, I know people don't know. Um, I had this conversation with Johnny actually in the first, the first podcast about, um, I think it should be taught in school, politics and the way it works. Mm. I shouldn't have to go and learn it myself. I should mm. understand how the country works, uh, how things are done. But it's not taught in school. It's not even, I mean, my mum was taught politics in school. Mm. So maybe it's just a generation thing, something that's come out of it. But I wasn't taught politics in school. I, when I worked in a secondary school, it wasn't even, I mean, they couldn't name, I could guarantee you the kids couldn't name three parties. Mm. They could maybe name two, maybe right. just the brighter kids. Yeah, um, but the rest, I mean, they'll be left to fend for themselves when they're eighteen, mm. and they have no idea what they're 
voting for and no time to go and look it up. It's far no. too compli- complicated and backhanded. It, it is really difficult because it undermines the whole democratic process, doesn't it, that yeah. has been fought for for so long. If people... Un- it's not that they're not exercising the rights, but, but, I mean, certainly it's got very little to do with the general election, I think, mm-hmm. because... For me, that isn't democracy. If you choose between a rock and a hard place, yeah, that that isn't democracy. And that's if, like the American election. Yeah, well, and, the most and, recent one. But the one. UK one is very similar. I mean, I remember going back, you know, even to um, early Blairites when it seemed quite radical in some ways. I mean, before that, we had people like Michael Foote and Neil Kinnock, who, in some ways, were, were frankly unelectable, just because their policy. For a long time, it was the case that a Labour government was never re-elected. And part of the reason was they almost effectively bankrupted the state. Right. For the best of intentions, but in the early part of a um, a period in office, they would spend money quite liberally in supporting social services, the public sector, uh, quite rightly in ways that they'd been hammered previously, but with no real financial contingency. Mm -hmm. So by the end of a term, they were really struggling and suddenly they had to react to that by putting up taxes, etc., which made them unpopular so they weren't re-elected. So they were gone. Yeah. And that was one of the things that Tony Blair turned around. You know, where Gordon Brown famously used the word prudent so often in his budget speeches as a way of saying, I'm not giving you away loads of money. Yeah. And any money I do give you, you're going to be accountable for. But he did trickle in investment into NHS and, and education in particular. Um but that was always a problem. In other ways, the differences between the two major parties in this country are really relatively minor. Yeah. You know, so you, you're basically choosing between two shades of the same colour. Mm-hmm. And for me, that isn't really democracy. Because no. you need a balance. Because, I mean, like you said, Labour would come and sort social issues and then mm. cripple the country. Conservatives yeah. would come and fix the budget. Yeah. Uh, and then neglect the social issues, yeah, so the Labour yeah. Party would win, and then come to fix the social issues. And gradually, you're supposed to sort of work your way up the stairs exactly. and improve the country so. as you go. Um, but the problem is, it's all sh- short-termist. Yeah. You know, you've only got what is it, six years or so. You're just trying to win the next one. It, exactly. From the day you go through number ten, you're looking to see how you can win the next election, and that's really the wrong strategy. Yeah. You know, you've got to think. Well, where is Britain going to be in twenty or thirty years? How do we ensure it's got the infra- I mean, you know, like the, the rail link that they're working on now. How do we ensure that we have the infrastructure that makes us competitive at that stage? And particularly now, one of the key things is how do you train the populace so that they have the skill set that we're yeah. going to need as a developed kind of Western country? We're not going to have a, a strong manufacturing base. No. We just can't compete on that level. So there has to be something else that gives us that edge, you know? Well, driving jobs will be gone. 20 years max there'll be no driving jobs taxis lorries everything yeah will be automated and it's not see i always think there's with the coal miners i understand because i'm from the midlands so it's Mm. different it's a manufacturing not coal but yeah cars generally but um i understand protests and you know save the steel industry and all of that stuff and because we need these jobs bring the jobs back but it it's not the job of government to hold back technological advances. If no. the jobs are, are going because you're refusing to notice that and refusing to retrain, yeah. then that's your fault. Yeah. It's, now, it's horrible mm. to, to even say, you know, it's your fault, but it is. Yeah. Maybe it's your passion in life is, is driving. I mean, my dad was a lorry driver. 
maybe your passion is driving lorries mm. but someone's telling you in 20 years that that's not going to be a thing mm. you need to make a plan you've got 20 years <laughs> to to think of something else yeah. you can go into something to do with the automated trucks perhaps they're going to need repairs they're going to yeah. need whatever they're going to need there needs to be more mechanics if these things are electric they're going to break more often it's a new technology you can move into that perhaps you can move into yeah. other training and but in my lifetime there's been a transformation so my parents were of a generation where people could enter a particular occupation and expect to have that occupation until they retired and that's clearly not the case now the no. vast majority of people they don't just switch from job to job but they switch from part of the sector to part of the sector they end up with quite different jobs with different demands and different skills mm -hmm. and absolutely the emphasis is much more on flexibility it's on creativity it's on the capacity to learn new things and in some ways i think that can only be a good thing because you know that if that freshens things up um i can't imagine doing exactly the same job for 40 years that, that like if you're the door handle guy i think my yeah. my granddad was he was like a, a finisher i think they called it right uh, uh was it i don't th i think it may have been persia i don't know enough about my own family history to be honest <laughs> but um yeah, he was a finisher, and that's it's like so. If you just put in the door handle on a hundred times a day mm. for forty years, yeah, yeah, and you get a pen at the end of it or a pension, <laughs> yeah. or, I, I, I couldn't do that. I can't. No, I, no. Uh, maybe it's coming into academia, but I honestly can't. Technically, I don't work for myself, but I kind of do. Mm -hmm. I mean, you kind of do, really. Other than the they tell you you show up this class at nine a.m. Yeah, but, but other than that, that it's yeah. it's your. It's your thing. This is generally what you're teaching. How you do it is mm. based on your expertise or whatever. I don't think I could go back into nine to five. No, and that, that's it. what makes this the kind of industry that you could stick with because yeah. it, it literally isn't the same job. I think, I'm, I'm sure in many ways, kind of nursing is similar, you know, in medicine perhaps. You know, there are a number of jobs that are like that where each day is substantially different. You don't really know what to expect on a particular day. You have your, your to-do list. And if you get through maybe a third of it, you're doing really well because all this other stuff comes in from left field yeah. that's unexpected. But that's the kind of thing that you can thrive on as long as it's not overwhelming and, and keeps it fresh and allows you to keep doing it. Yeah. You know, keeps you alive and alert as well, hopefully. Keep you younger for longer, you know, mentally. Yeah, I do notice that with, with academics, especially in general, like sort of intellectual professions, that, you know, 80, 90-year-olds are way more switched on than mm. you, not less, mm. you know. Um, because they're still reading, they're still learning new things, and they're still. Yeah. I mean, Stan Krippner's still flying everywhere and talking, <laughs> and um, and is incredibly astute. Yeah, and his schedule in terms of like flights and travel is probably more than I could handle, yeah. and I'm yeah. 27, mm. so he could yeah. probably fall asleep at the drop of a hat, though. Yeah, things. probably he can and probably just control help. it. Yeah, but I, I'm on a council for a research um, organisation, and. You know, the average age of people on that council would be certainly late 60s, I would say. And as you say, that they are people who are very alert, very insightful still. But of course, that's a reciprocal thing. You know, by engaging in stuff that's quite demanding intellectually, yeah, you, you are in a sense. I know it's a bad analogy, but you are flexing your intellectual muscles. You are I was just, I was just thinking as you said that. Actually, that's the same thing physically mm. so you know the reason health declines after retirement is because people stop moving yeah, yeah. Or they stop doing something like yeah. you get up every day and you go to your uh semi-unskilled manual labor job yeah 
and people are like, oh, wow, you're doing it till you're 60, and then you're 64, 65, and then you retire. That's that's amazing. You're still doing it at 65, and then 66, you've only been retired a year. All of a sudden, you have all these health problems yeah, you didn't have yeah. before, and it's literally because you've stopped exercising. Yeah. You've stopped moving. Yeah. I mean, you should retire and think about what would you have done with that time if you were, when you were in your 20s? And Absolutely. you wanted to be retired, and you're Especially not. Especially we can't have retirement first. <laughs> yeah, that would be and the best. To pay if for you it can, yeah, if you can grow up to your thirty and just do whatever you want for mm. thirty years, or from eighteen to thirty, and then work until you're dead, that would be a better way around. But I think as people trusting. get older, they often talk about the the foolishness of youth, though. Do they wasted it? And and I think there is a sense of that. Honestly, looking back a little bit, that uh, if I had my time again, I would make a better fist of it. I think. I think that's definitely true. Um, but then I, I wouldn't have been me, so I'm yeah. quite happy to leave it as it was, frankly. Um, so the, the flip side, but the, the other thing that's changed generationally is this sense of accepting age. And I think people are, are um, fighting against that a lot more and doing dynamic and active things in older age. So the retirement model is, I think, particularly interesting to me. The number of people who are moving to other countries then, learning a new language, you know, yeah. exposing themselves to a new culture. You know, that's it. And partly it's material wealth. I think we're in a position now where more people are able to do that. You know, um, we still have a number of people who are older who are below the poverty line, which I think is, is shocking in this country. Yeah. And how anybody could live just on the state pension, I have no idea. Yeah, it's basically nothing. Mm. So those things are against us. But if you have any means it is possible to still be out there. You know, you can be out walking and cycling every day in some kind of warm climate, you know, swimming. There's all sorts of things you can do that make each day different from the last. Yeah. You know, and, and look, make you look forward to the next as well. It's the argument from a lot of uh, sort of biologists, evolutionary biologists, um, that counteracts the idea that, you know, people died when they were 30 or 40, whatever, in tribal cultures mm. and um, historic humans um mm. but that's not the case the, the thing that brought the, the average the age average down would have been um infant mortality absolutely and deaths during childbirth yeah. that would have brought it all down but humans even you know cavemen would have lived into their 60s providing yeah. they didn't get eaten by something or yeah. killed by another tribe yeah. into their 60s and 70s well you see that now i mean there are tribal communities that we know of who live autonomously they're quite separate from the wider society of the world um, and of course they have elderly people in those communities yeah. and they are effectively retired they, they do jobs around the village they're not expected to participate in the hunt for example or some of the more strenuous tasks and a place is found for them yeah they're taken care of so mm. it's sort of you're taken care of as a as a child and then you're brought into the tribe and then you take care of everybody else exactly that's your obligation at that stage yeah, yeah that's the job mm. but that's the difference between the individualistic societies and collectivist isn't it yeah it's individualist it's like we're only going to take care of our parents yeah. yeah which is why you get you know people only on the state pension yeah below the poverty line when perhaps they don't have family or, or kids that don't sure, care yeah. or, or whatever it is yeah um yeah it's not i don't know i don't like the idea of age to be what retires you mm. i don't think 65 i think i think you should retire at 35 if you want if you've got the means to do so, absolutely, absolutely, you, you can do that by all means. And, and academia is a thing where you can keep you keep working if you want. You're not going to retire I at thirty-five. But whatever you, you do, I think you, you. But you don't. You end up with a different occupation. 
Yeah. And all an occupation is then is something that occupies your time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and whether somebody pays you for that occupation or not is, is in a way neither here nor there. Yeah. You know, if you write novels that don't sell particularly well, but they're gratifying and the people who do read them enjoy them, you know, so it's not enough to make an income from or, or make a living. That doesn't matter. You know, that's yeah. a fulfilling thing to do with the time that you have. You've only got to keep the lights on. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you can do that with with whatever, which is, again, why academia is a good thing, because you can, if you're not bringing in an income, a research income, or mm. or from books or from whatever you've written, there may be some teaching for you. You can yeah. do that and make your money that way. And, yeah. again, that's fulfilling in different reasons, yeah. which I'm sure is the reason why primary school teachers are still working as hard as they do, mm. because they get that. They, yes. they get to see that spark like yeah. every day where you explain something and someone gets it. Yeah. You see that every day with children. Yeah. Um But yeah, I mean when I was in a secondary school, the workload is if you get paid for thirty two or thirty six hours, it's fifty five, like mm, on a good I'm week. Sure. I'm sure. Um because of the the data and I mean I had to put it into perspective what I had, I had set five of four. Right, how does that work? So there were four sets normally mm. for science. It was teaching biology, uh, physics and chemistry. And I had the fifth set. So right. every year had four sets. But they had this special set mm. of kids so bad that they couldn't get into the fourth set. And most of the time it wasn't their fault. There were nine languages. Right. And two children had English as first language. Yeah. Uh, and they were both... Uh, they had learning difficulties so like in terms of like when when it was being when I was being observed like I was told you know try and translate stuff mm. I was like into nine languages <laughs> so I did and but, wow. but only for those observations because yeah. it's not feasible to do for th- that many hours which is the case any teacher who tells you otherwise is just like hiding it from their mm. superiors or whatever but when you're being observed you do behave differently if Ofsted are in you're behaving course, differently yeah. Yeah. the kids do too because the kids understand and they help you out <laughs> um, but yeah so I translated into nine languages uh, and there were Romanian students and gypsy Romanian students which most people would think are the same thing but they hate each other mm. so they don't sit anywhere near each other um, so it's, I have it translated into both, into Romanian and into Gypsy Romanian, mm. so, which is sort of a little bit the same. But I had the students in the class, the Romanian students saying, I can't read this. And I was like, oh, is it, is it wrong? Is it wrong? No, I, I didn't go to school in Romania. Oh. So I can read and I can speak and, and uh, understand. Yeah. Um, but the, the only language I have, the only writing of science I have is in English right. it's since I've been here, mm. which is like two years. And they're in year 11, mm. year 10, year 11 by then. And I'm supposed to get them two levels of progress. Yeah. If they come in with a, a lie mm. from primary school saying that they got a level four, I'm supposed to get them a B. Mm. Not, I mean, they're not going to... So your current job should be a walk in the park compared with that. Yeah. Well, there's, <laughs> there's a lot less um, verbal abuse, right, <laughs> for sure. Good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I don't, I've not had to break up a fight or tell anyone to shut up since I've been here, <laughs> which is a benefit. Yeah. But I mean, it, it just it it's an almost impossible job to do, mm. and it's not rewarded financially mm. as it should be. You know, mm. you shouldn't be worried about your bills. No, if no. you're, I mean, raising everybody's children. Yeah, and a lot of the yeah. parents, and it, it may I may be skewed because it's a bad school, 
a lot of the parents almost treat school as a daycare, mm. as like nursery. So it's but just that, that's some, hard because some where I the mean, kids go. I've always felt that you know, you, being a parent is a, a full time occupation, and you know, you, it's not something you take lightly. When you become a parent, it it has to be the centre of your world, and everything you do from that point onwards is about allowing your kids to fulfill their potentials. So everything, you know, I've never thought of kind of dumping them somewhere so that they're, they're occupied for a bit while I could go and do my thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a different attitude though. I mean, mm. when some of the parents would complain, and my mum still works there, but she takes, the school she works at has a, a pru before the pru. Okay. So it has a, a little centre that when they're expelled, they're still technically a student at the school. Okay. And they have a chance to redeem themselves before it, so you get kicked out, mm. and then if you get kicked out of where my mum has you, then you're gone, you're a <laughs> prue. Um, so it's the the bottom, so last chance. Mm. And, uh, I mean, parents will complain, you know, you've had, you've had my son for two years, and he's not whatever improved. Yeah. And my mum's argument is, you know, you've had him for 15. Yeah, yeah. And that's where, this is where we are now. This yeah. is what's happening. This is why he's throwing chairs and... Mm. refuses to stay in his seat and eats with his hands. But that's one of the difficulties. You know, you've not got everybody on a level playing field. You've got environmental and background differences. Yeah. And it wasn't anything that I at all appreciated when I was a school kid. I went to a, a very bad school. Uh, it, it drew um, kids from two sink estates that we had in Preston who, who were Catholics. So they all went to the same school as me. And I, my bit was quite a poor working class part of town, yeah. but not the same problems, you know. Um, and there was a lot of kids there who were um, troubled, who were very disruptive in lots of situations. Yeah. Um, and at the time, you just think, well, these are knobheads, really. You, you think, you know, but you've no idea what their home yeah. life is, what they're going home to. Yeah. You know, if they're lucky, they might be kind of latchkey kids where there's nobody home. Their parents may be alcoholic or something. Yeah. But you know, much more likely they're in a kind of a quasi-abusive situation of some sort. Yeah. And, and you never think of that as a kid. You assume everybody's upbringing is the same as yours. I had two parents at home who worked really hard. You didn't see that much of them, but, you know, you knew that they wanted you around. Yeah. You know, and that made for a very stable environment. You've no idea what other people have got. That's the thing. I mean, a lot of the times you... you get given this class and again that's because of the time so you don't have time to to vet and when i worked in, in birmingham i did the gang stuff we we vetted everyone so right. we we talked to probation officers we talked to social workers we talked to anyone that had an involvement in this mm. in this uh in this kid basically uh, and they have reports on them they have the the calf the child assessment framework or okay so it's I think it's it's called a CAF. I can't remember what the letters stand for. Um, but yeah, it's, they have meetings and all these things that they're working with, and we would become a subject on the meeting. Right. They're working with this youth organisation, this basketball club, doing this uh, CBT program or whatever mm. it is. Um, so we could vet them, but in in school you you don't have that chance. It's like you know in September, you're teaching this class, mm. and you're told September first. Yeah, just get on. September fifth that you're teaching. Yeah. You get on with it, and and there's no time, and you got to plan all the lessons, do all the data. Mm. Uh, and some schools, even when you train and you have to plan your lessons, and produce a lesson plan document, then send it before you teach the lesson, mm. which adds another two hours to pr then prepare this useless document. When I could just write 
I could just prepare the PowerPoint yeah. or just prepare the sheets or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Instead, I've got to prepare all this extra stuff. don't have yeah. time to vet the kids. So when the kids are misbehaving, I can't see why they're misbehaving, mm. where that comes from. I just have to yell at them and, and you know, then they hate education forever because yeah. they equate education to being yelled at. I mean, so, some of that, frankly, seems to be a legacy from New Labour. Because New, New Labour got in with the idea that they were going to invest heavily in education. And previous Labour governments had been um, held over the coals because they'd poured all this money into various things, public services, and there was no record of what impact they'd had, how it had actually improved anything. Mm-hmm. And the problem was, and the solution to that, is to measure the hell out of everything in the hope of identifying you know, what you're getting, what's your return on investment for all that extra So there cash. weren't so much exams and before? I, I think it's the teacher side of things. I think there were right. still assessments. I mean, before my time, there was things like the 11 plus. Uh, in my time, yeah, of course, you've still got your mocks and you've got your pre-GCSEs and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff going on. Um, but I think, as you're saying, you know, the idea of preparing lesson plans for every class, yeah. you know, and having the documentation for what you're going to do, well, partly the reason for that, of course, is because that's tangible and objective. It's something that's shareable with other people. Because what really makes you special in that classroom isn't something that... Yeah, it's not a task. Yeah, exactly. It's and you can't you. put a number against it, really. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you as a dynamic person interacting with other dynamic people. And, you know, you see lots of good programs about inspirational teachers. And they don't all have to be mavericks, but they have to be kind of human beings and centred and authentic. And that's enough for them to build a relationship with, with each of the kids in a way that allows them to kind of develop and yeah. grow academically, intellectually, however you want, personally as well. Um, but you can't, uh, you'd need to conduct an interview with each student in order to get a picture of what has this teacher done for them. Yeah, That's no good to somebody who's trying to collate all this for the, the local education authority. That's not going to work out for them. No. So that's how you've, we've ended up with a system which is not at all fit for purpose. Just too much data. Yeah. Trying to analyse how well teachers are doing. Yeah, that's the case in America as well. Um, obviously, I consume a lot of podcasts as well. Mm. Um, most of them are American. But, you know, they're talking about... And teachers are paid horrific salaries, mm. like twenty grand, mm. $20,000, um, $25,000, which is... And that's with student loans, presumably, to pay back... Yeah, which are particularly big in the states. Yeah, you'd need a degree um, from a good school, mm. you know. So the, almost the most important job, or one of the most important jobs, you know, raising sort of the next generation, teaching them how to think. Mm. Um, for more contact hours than you would get with your parents generally, particularly mm. in good schools whose parents are working a, a job where they're away a lot, yeah, or, or working late. And you you pay them the least, mm. and no benefits and nothing afterwards. Yeah, and it's bizarre. So they're struggling financially, and then they bring all those problems, personal problems that the teacher has mm. because of the struggles, into the classroom, mm. and uh, you're not going to get a productive result. No, in a bad school, you're going to keep those kids in that cycle of of that yeah. underclass cycle. It's not even working class, yeah. you know. It's, and the school I was at is predominantly sort of an underclass. Most parents don't but, but work. But again, but. So, so some of the product of that then is that the criteria for success are things like, well, how did you do in physics, chemistry and biology, like you were saying before, your subjects, when it shouldn't be. It should no, be, it shouldn't be, you know, education is about um, being a good citizen and being a functional member of society. And that includes things that empower you, 
So you know what your rights are, you know where to go for various support and services. And partly it's about your obligation to others. So what are you supposed to do as a good citizen in terms of, you know, law breaking? You know, people kind of lose the point that laws are established in order to minimise harm to others. That's got to be the bottom line. So that's why it's wrong to steal, because you're stealing from another person, you know, and their life is made worse because of it. You know, so stealing in itself is not wrong. It's the impacts, in my view, that it has. And allowing people to recognise that. You know, things like, you know, the schemes like uh, introducing um, people who nick bikes to the person whose bike it was before they nicked it, you know. That kind of thing is incredibly powerful as a way of recognising consequences. That's the kind of stuff that should be a focus for schooling, you know. Of course, it includes things like sexual health and, you know, um, information education around drugs and things like that. Absolutely, is part of that picture. But some of it is even more fundamental than those things. It is, you know, well, how do you go about getting a mortgage? Yeah. Well, why would, might you get one? You know, That would have been more useful to, to learn than the types of rock. Yeah. Or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, something that I've, I'm not going to learn again. Yeah. Uh, how, how is a Doxbow Lake formed? Yeah. You know, something like, <laughs> like I, I, I literally almost only need to know mathematics and how to read and how to write. Yeah. I don't mean, like, physically writing. I mean, you know, sentence structure and, mm. and all of that. Because... Once I know how to read, if I'm interested in geography and different kinds of rocks, I always pick on geography whenever I say <laughs> that. But if I'm interested in that, I can go and read that yeah. in a library yeah. or we have the internet. So yeah. I can just go and find out everything there is about tertiary rocks. Exactly. But it's got to be about critical thinking, you know, and also a, a, a sense of an awareness of context. So critical thinking is crucial because the kind of things we do in the parapsychology module with our third year. So, you know, these are very mature people, 21, 22. Um, even at that stage, we're saying, you know, here, here's a claim that somebody's making. How can you evaluate that? How can you tease that apart into its component parts? How can you test each of those bits to get a sense of whether the claim is sound? Mm-hmm. But, of course, it's not really about parapsychology. It's a set of skills that you apply to anything. It's something on the news when somebody's claiming, you know, that something has happened to them or somebody else is claiming that this policy is doing this thing yeah. or it's going to be better than the previous policy. It allows you to become an informed consumer of that kind of stuff. You know, I think that that kind of stuff is really crucial in that. They're the transferable skills, the, the employability stuff that, that Northampton's, like, focused on. Yeah. Um, but I think the students need to know that that's what they've learned. Yeah. So, like, yeah. You, you've, you've just learned how to pick things apart. Now, mm. I suggest when you're having that discussion in the pub with your friends and they say something stupid, yeah. you use those same skills and you pick yeah. that apart and then you, you take that to everything that you watch on TV and all the films and yeah. you're going to be annoying. Mm. But that's what a psychologist does, I'm afraid. Yeah, you yeah. break down behaviour and the way people work. Yeah. And, yeah. But, you know, those things aren't taught. Like, students come here. Again, I spoke about this with Cal. You know, students come here and just want the piece of paper yeah because at some somewhere in the line they've been taught that that that's what you need you need the piece of paper and that's what this is and that's what a university is and i probably thought that but i was wrong if i did yeah because they they don't realize that the project is themselves yeah you know it's how we transform them how they change that's the focus yeah the project's not the essay no it's what did you learn during writing that essay exactly and, and for which me bits of that I can do stuck. it at two in the morning exactly <laughs> my classic case for me is my daughter did air level history and most of it was American and Russian history which is all fine and well 
But for me, it would have been much better for her as a citizen to learn about, you know, political change in this country that led, for example, to the kind of equal rights that we've got mm-hmm. from different times and, you know, what the arguments are around that, how we have, uh, you know, the social services that we have in this country, how the NHS was established, because it's only by getting that kind of back. What, what was it like before that? What yeah. would it be like if, for some reason, God forbid, that whole bro- thing broke down, you know, that's what we need in order to act as a driver to say, because it's very easy to be complacent. If, if you've only known things as they are, yeah. you don't really have any fears about how they could be. Absolute learning about World War II and learning the importance of the European community in ensuring stability among a, a group of countries which are incredibly fractious and have been for 2,000 years yeah. fractious with each other. I'm just reading a book at the minute um, about um, the, um, what are they called? the old contemptibles who were the original British army, the British expeditionary force that was in France at the time of the outbreak of world war one. Right. And the guy who's written this book has started by saying, well, I need to explain to you why world war one broke out, you know, and it isn't about the assassination of Franz Ferdinand Mm. per se. Here's what was going on. And it's incredible. The kind of the fractiousness there, you know, the coveting of each other's territories and, and peoples and, you know, and the difficulties that people had living with each other. Yeah. You know, it, it's just is inherent in human nature. So everything we can learn from that to prevent that kind of stuff happening in the 21st century mm. has to be a good thing. Well, look at the genetic profile of a whole of Europe. Yeah. It's everybody's invaded. Every, I mean, especially Britain because yeah. it's an island yeah. and it's got nice... You know, the weather's not going to kill you, and it can, you can grow things here. That's <laughs> yeah, the point yeah, absolutely. of Britain. Yeah. You know, everything grows here. There's, you know, I've got ginger in my beard, but I've got like weird light coloured eyes, dark hair. <laughs> there's no, like, there's some island there, some Scotland, and there's something. Yeah, and a lot, yeah. most people have, like, some people have blonde, and some people have whatever. Like, there's no true English. There's no. Well, then we should all have a genetic test at school as part of our education, because the one thing that draws attention to is we're all essentially the same. Yeah. That any differences we see in the way we speak, what language is our preferred language, are absolutely superficial. Yeah. That actually in the melting pot, we've all got a bit of Eastern European, we've got a bit of uh, African, maybe in white people still, if you you know, yeah. you look through the genes, that, yeah. that's, I assume, very likely. And it's got to be a way to bring people together and recognise the ways in which we're different from each other, incredibly tiny. And minor it's astonishing really yeah there's more difference within the races than between the races mm. i think it's uh yeah i was kind of disappointed when i did my genealogy thing okay because I, I was expecting that i was like yeah. oh cool we're gonna have all these different things yeah. no nah, just ireland and scotland <laughs> <laughs> it was all just a big circle on ireland yeah. they just sat on that bit of sod of land yeah you know for so a thousand years all it said was celt like right. that's all it was just those two because yeah. It comes up as the same, yeah, because they just invaded each other. So it's just. But I'm astonished there's not more Scandinavian in there. I thought so. Yeah, I thought you know I'm tall, you know, no, <laughs> nothing bizarre. Yeah, I don't get that. No. Yeah, I, I was checking out a little bit about Macbeth. Uh, I was really into um, um, a historical novelist mm-hmm. called Nigel Tranter. He, he was so it was when I was I lived in Scotland for ten years and you know there's a kind of romance about Scotland and Scottishness for me yeah um, and Nigel Tranter has done a brilliant job 
over about 50 or 60 years. He's dead now, but he died when he was about 90, 90 odds. He's written these novels, which are based around genuine historical events. So one is about James I succeeding uh, Elizabeth and coming down to London and all the backbiting stuff that would go on there. Who, who is this kind of usurper coming in and taking over and bringing his, you know, his entourage of people down with him, all that kind of stuff. Um, and his story of Macbeth is really interesting because, of course, the version we have is a fiction mm-hmm. created by Shakespeare because um, James I's lineage goes back to Malcolm and um, I think it's and is it Duncan who he kills. I can't remember who he kills in that play. Remember. And so he's made out to be this evil person. And in fact, he was um, he, he had a, a kind of a, a clear um, right of succession. You know, and he succeeded in battles, all these kind of things, which people forget. But his cousin was called something like Fortbeard, uh, Thorin Fortbeard, and he um, was master of the Shetland Islands. Right. And so some kind of interbreed. And so one was clearly seen as um, a Norseman or a Dane, and Macbeth is seen as a Scot. And yet they're incredibly uh, closely linked Mm. uh, genetically. And I, I just imagine that's, I mean, and the whole Swades, you know, um, we were watching The Last Kingdom. I don't know if you've seen that TV yeah. series. Fabulous. Again, for that idea, you know, you forget how much of England belonged to the Danes. Yeah, there's a series called Norseman on uh, Netflix, which is a similar sort of thing. It's ah, like a, okay. an English child was taken as a slave. Yeah. But the, he's, he sort of had a crush on the, the leader of the, that particular sort of group on their daughter mm. and sort of pushed her out of the way when someone was trying to kill her. So he ended up saving her life ah, okay. so that the English slave became the guy's son. Like an adopted. Yeah, yeah. became mm. his son, basically, uh, and literally became his son, like his stepbrother or his adopted brother. Yeah. Then was his brother, his best friend, blah, blah, blah. So literally the Englishman became a Norseman. Mm. And then, um, but he was royalty in England, so he was supposed to have a kingdom that the, that the Danes then took. Mm. Um, and then, like the whole story is like he, he comes back to he works with the English because they're saying we'll give it you back. Mm. But then he's torn because now his brother's the leader, mm. so he's all torn between the two. And he says, if we catch you, we'll kill you. The English like, if you work with us, <laughs> or we'll kill you. Absolutely. So you he's, he's, in, he's uh, then he becomes best friends with Leofric, who's the leader of the the English army in that point. That little bit. So mm. it's this big long story. But you, you sort of notice then that they make little deals where it's like, okay. You Danes don't kill us mm. if we pay you. Mm. They're like, okay, fine. Yeah. And then they end up generation after generation. They grow up together and then they intermingle. Exactly. And that's it. It's it now. It's it's done. Exactly. And it's all down to interbreeding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, the the Last Kingdom is a series of books by a guy called Bernard Cornwell, who's best known for his sharp books. Okay. You know, set during um, the the wars with the French, kind of Waterloo and things like that. Um, he makes a real point in those books of talking about how. Vikings are not ever called Vikings. It's a verb, isn't it? it exactly. Yeah. Viking is something you do, but when you go uh, reaving, I guess you'd call it in Game of Thrones terms. I don't watch you know. It. So you go, you invade places, and you take what you can, you, you yeah. rape who you can, and then you go home again. Uh, and that actually, um, the English, uh, the Angles, always referred to them as uh, Danes or Norsemen, and there wasn't the clear separation between, say, Denmark and yeah. uh, Norway and Sweden. Um, but also, mainly, they were called pagans. 
because yeah, they're non-Christian. Yeah. That, in the Norse when they call them pagan. Yeah, but then disappointingly, when David Saunders and I went to Oslo for a conference, we went around a couple of museums and everything is Viking this and Viking that. Uh, so, tourism. you know, I don't yeah. know who to believe anymore. Um, but yeah, one of the key things you were talking about, so um, during the Danegeld period, um, where Alfred the Great won his great battle, one of the conditions of the surrender was, and I forget the guy's name now off the top of my head, but the uh, the Dane had to convert to Christianity. So that was like the most important condition on this. You can keep all the land, yeah. not bothered about that, but, you've got but to you be must a become a Christian. So it's yeah. a bit bizarre. Yeah, this show then must be quite historically accurate because it, it has these these kinds of things. Yeah. And the, the fascination with with Christianity from the other side. Yeah. So like the, the pagans are looking at Christianity like, oh, isn't that weird? Like you think there's a man in the sky. Tell me more. Like, yeah, kinda, absolutely. But if you get wrong, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, but, exactly. Like, <laughs> but yeah. especially given that um, the, the Christian God um, on Earth has no special talents. You know, <laughs> it's not like Thor or something, is he? It doesn't have command yeah, of the skies. Right. Uh, he's just a bloke who said a few things and then they nailed him to a piece of wood. <laughs> you know, and he died. But yeah. somehow, mysteriously, something happened after that. Yeah. And there's a weird cross between the... Because in this, there were some English pagans left so like witches mm. uh, and then yeah it's like it's weird and there's lots of interbreeding all over the place much yeah. like uh, I'm sure Game of Thrones is yeah, as well. there's yeah. a lot of but that's the, the great thing about Game of Thrones as a series is just the, the nuance and complexities of it it's a bit it's got it's Tolkien-esque in the sense that there's so much backstory yeah. that, that's kind of meted out in s- small bits as you need it um, but it's clearly all thought through so what you see now, say your and my relationship in Game of Thrones, isn't just our relationship, but it's historical as well. Yeah. It depends on how your family treated my family, you know, which alliances we'd had in the past, all those kind of things build into our sense of obligation or not right now. Yeah. You know, and that of course you'd imagine is how it would have been. Yeah, in small groups. Like yeah. Sort you, of tribes or, or Exactly you'd have that sense. I mean, you know, I'm really interested in historical fiction and, and, and historical fact, but you know, George Martin is very clearly clear that much of his writing is derived from uh, the kind of War of the Roses period in English history. And it's just astonishing, you know, that period um, was incredibly tumultuous and traumatic for people, a, a series of battles over about 150 years. Um, and, you know, which house you belong to, if you were with Warwick, for example, or you're, you know, one of the Lancastrian estates, that determined who you marched out to fight for. Yeah. And incredibly bloody battles, you know, much worse than anything we see now, just in terms of you're face-to-face with the person. And you know. and whatever you're hitting them with isn't that sharp. No, no. So you have to <laughs> hit them hard and, yeah. and often. And it's, yeah, I can only imagine, really. I always wonder how everyone didn't die. Yeah. Either yeah. How, how everyone didn't die or there's lots of, you know, you get hit on the head, you can curse, you're like, I'm done. Sort of, and you go, you go home like you Time win. Time out. Yeah, like, you, you win. It's all right. Yeah, <laughs> I'll join you now. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of that as well because mm. you can't just kill everybody. No, it wipes out no. entire houses. But um, which I think is the reason the Danes were so um, good. I guess at what they did because they did kill everybody. Mm. Well, uh, in history, is what we're told they did. But they, they were good about kind of seeding the next generation, though. So there's a lot that they would, I mean, when they came over here, they would settle for certainly a season. They might um, go home for the winter, but they might not. They might stay here for like 18 months Mm. or two years at a time 
and slowly many of them completely settled. Yeah, I mean, they didn't, and they're not even the first to have done that. No. You know, so I mean, there were the Romans before then that wiped out. I, I did, when I was doing the tattoo research, I had to sort of research, and I, I didn't know any of the information I found out, you know, in terms of like Britannia coming from, it means the land of the painted people. Mm. And so much like, like sort of Maori tattoos in New Zealand and in, in um, Hawaii and stuff like that, we had, I say we, English people would have had, based on their various tribes, their own. Mm. So the Picts had like yeah. blue tattoos with animals and the moon and stars and all that and their own sort of pagan rituals. Mm. And it's all wiped out, which was, it, it just, it was a shame for me because I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to sort of have those tattoos again yeah. and still have our traditional tattoo culture as they do in New Zealand, which yeah, is yeah. which is cool. They still have their ancient culture. Yeah. Uh, in some way, I'm trying to preserve that. Do we not have records then of the kinds of tattoo? I think there are some sort of mummified skin where you, you can see some, but there's right. no sort of uh, record of what they mean. I thought there would have been, you see. I mean, the Romans were pretty good at that kind of thing. I think they were just wiped out. Right. Um, because they were pagan. Mm. Um, but, I mean, I, I'll have to dig deeper and see if there really is anything, but... Uh, because one of the ways the Romans were particularly successful is because they they truly knew their enemies. You know, they would understand much more about their cultures. Um, classic examples are um, that they would very often um, take sons as hostages, for example. So I'm thinking uh, the Germanic tribes. So they, they would raid across the Rhine. Um, they would capture some of these. And the, the, the sons would be held hostage in Rome as a condition then of good behaviour. So then those Germans would have to pay, um, what would you call it, kind of, those Jews that we're talking about before, mm. you know. Um, but then the sons would be Romanized. Right. They would speak Latin. They'd be, they'd be treated incredibly respectfully yeah. as elite members of society. And then the expectation is in the next generation, they would come into their inheritance, but they would be Roman sympathisers. So is that why it spread so well? Just the, because it was... The, they were very good at appropriating things. So, and not, you know, not racist either, right? Because I don't think so, when no. they were in Africa, they had African officers and yeah. they would be stationed all over the... Yeah. So, yeah, because I, I, I was reading, I can't remember where I was reading it, that uh, sort of the history of racism in, in Britain was way after the Romans. Right. Because they were black officers. Right. And so you would regularly see, you know, uh, African soldiers or children of African soldiers mm. in England. Uh, for that reason, yeah, because of the Roman Empire, mm. it was just wasn't racist, and it had some weird sort of gender neutrality thing, or sort of sexual preference neutrality for sure. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, it was definitely. A, but for all the good things that they did, mm. you know, they wiped out whatever was there first. Right. Anyone yeah. that put up a fight. That sounds a bit Monty <laughs> Python, doesn't it? Well, what did the Romans ever do for us, <laughs> apart from? Yeah, I mean, but. I read recently a book by Boris Johnson talking about that period of Roman history because he was trying to draw lessons that might apply to EU relations. I think it's very tenuous to say that how we think about each other now has got anything to do with what happened way <laughs> back then. Um, but yeah, he, he very much picked up on that idea of um, appropriation. Yeah. So the idea is, well, two, twofold. One is citizenship. So there is a real sense that you know, people who were in Britain had never been outside of Britain could still be Roman citizens and entitled to all the rights of a Roman citizen in the right circumstances. But also, you know, the pantheon of gods would appropriate 
you know, local gods, they would be honoured in, in Roman temples in a way that made it much more difficult, mm-hmm. you know, to them and us. There was very much this sense of assimilation, you know, done in a very subtle way, which meant then that you weren't an occupying force anymore. You know, obviously that takes generations to achieve, but that's kind of the key to it. Yeah. And Hadrian's Wall shows that it wasn't always no. successful. <laughs> Hadrian's Wall is really underwhelming as a wall. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the, the models are good. If you if you check out a couple of places where they've got like museums, and you see that you know the actual walls would have been probably in in most places closer to twenty feet mm. tall, you know, and, and you've got those um, well those occasional forts that yeah. held something like four hundred men, I think, um, eight hundred something like that. They were relatively modest, but they were they were stationed so far apart. You know that was kind of interesting. And then of course. No, none of the Roman soldiers were allowed to marry. So all the de facto wives had to live in right. a village that built up just outside the fort. Right. So be okay. a whole community just outside. Of just yeah. Roman children. Exactly. And then, you know, uh, locals whose trade was built on selling stuff to them, you know, that kind of thing. And it would, so, you know, people are. Built up towns and cities by accident. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, I'm sure how it works. And, and only when you retired after you'd served whatever, I think it's 20 years, something like that. Could you then retire? And you got a retirement um, kind of bundle that was probably enough for you to have a farm or something back in Italy, you know, or wherever you were from, of course, because mm. many uh, Roman soldiers weren't from Italy at all by then. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm. They used to move them around a lot, though. So very likely the soldiers in Britain wouldn't have been British. They would have been yeah, from that's what Germany I mean, with the officers, or Yeah, they'd move the officers Spain. and they would train mm. the locals essentially. Mm. And any of those that became officers would then be stationed elsewhere. Exactly. Move them around a bit, yeah. Yeah, it's it's mad. And it all from this little island was just invaded by everybody, it seems. Yeah. And then went and did the same thing in more recent history. Absolutely. The sun never set on the British Empire. Yeah. But Empire's not sort of ended, really. It's just different. I don't think it's military-based anymore. Right, okay. I mean, there's a McDonald's in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, more culturally a, based. McDonald's yeah. in Tiananmen Square. You know, it's sort of mm. everything's spread in a bit. Everyone has a mobile phone. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I, I suspect it's not assimilation in the same way, though. I think as Westerners who speak English, we might over uh, generalize what's going on because I, I can see somebody still being very culturally grounded who makes use of these yeah. artifacts. Yeah, but they don't become part of who they are, a part of their culture, in quite the same way. Yeah, well, I mean, the menu's different in McDonald's. Yeah, <laughs> so it's still reflective yeah, of those the culture kind of and what would yeah. sell in the culture. So mm. it is still a business. It's not really got anything to do with Americanism as it is. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, the biggest, the biggest sort of thing that makes me say that is sort of uh, like American culture in Japan and China, whereas sort of I mean, basketball, especially shoes and sort of comic book stuff and all of that kind of stuff is like super popular Mm. Um, but then Japan also has their own anime which Mm. is really really popular in the west Mm -hmm. it's just weird it's weird because the internet everything's sort of just blending together you can get whatever you want yeah which again has to be a good thing yeah you know because I think what what breeds um, kind of mistrust is ignorance isn't it you know it's the, the people you don't know much about who seem on the face of it to be different but the more you learn about other people and discover that you've got a lot in common in various ways fundamentally 
then the harder it is to to hate that person or that community i think is that useful in in parapsychology sort of being able to share experiences and and people seeing that it's a thing perhaps? yeah um in a different way i think that the biggest challenge we always face is that people assume that their experience is um a taboo for different reasons people learn very quickly that you don't share you know the experience of something quote paranormal with somebody else because straight away that labels you as gullible in some way or needy if you're lucky and and about and uh, more negatively, that it's a sign of some kind of pathology. Yeah. There's something wrong with you, and that's why you're having these experiences. Um, and so I think there's a real need to reach out a lot more to people and explain these experiences are very normal. They're, they're unusual in the sense that they don't happen very often to people, to the average person, but they do happen to lots and lots of people, maybe once or twice in their lives. Yeah. Uh, and these people are otherwise very sane, very healthy, um, and they pose a challenge to understand what's going on. So, so this can sort of be a standalone uh, podcast. What would you could you define parapsychology to you? Yeah, I mean, parapsychology is the scientific study of experiences that people have that seem to be inexplicable in terms of our current scientific model. So, the bottom line is the scientific worldview that we currently have is what we'd call a materialist worldview. Uh, part of that is that human consciousness, the sense of being a person, is a product of your brain's activity mm-hmm. in such a way that when your brain dies, you die. Okay, So any kind of experiences people have that suggest to them that that's not true, that suggest that personality can survive death, yeah. that's impossible. So you can't have things like near-death experiences, you can't have things like apparitional experiences, you can't have mediumistic communications that are genuinely anti-Edith coming through to tell you that she's pleased about how you're looking after her garden. Yeah, You know, th- those are clearly based on a lie at best or um, a misinterpretation. A, okay. a lie at worst, rather, or a or misinterpretation. Like a hallucination. Yeah. And then there are other collections of experiences that follow from that. So given that our consciousness is only a product of the brain, then the only way that we as a person, I as a person, let's say, can know about the world around me is mediated by that brain and the senses to which it's connected. Yeah. So by seeing and hearing, touching and feeling, listening to other people's talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. Those are the ways I learn. So anything else is impossible. So it's impossible for me to have um, a twinge in my stomach at the very moment that my brother uh, in um, South Africa is in an accident and, and damages his stomach. Yeah. That's impossible because... I can't be mediated by my senses. It's impossible for me to have a dream about an event that later happens. Precognition, premonitions, they're impossible because that's not how the brain connects with the world around it. Uh, And then the final kind of category is that the only way I can change or affect the world around me, including other people, is mediated by my body, so the motor systems. So by talking to you, I'm I'm impacting on you in a way. Um, I can move objects around in this room so they're physically affected, but it's all mediated by my muscles. So it's impossible for me then to, through an act of intention, change your biology. Mm -hmm. So if I do do a healing session with you, uh, which I'm not um, skilled in, but if I were to attempt that and you had a physical body embodied change, that couldn't be. My intention it had to be placebo or something like that going on. Yeah, um, I was going to say we can do it in our own body. 
we can think certain but things. But even there, the, the, the claim is that the mediation systems are fairly straightforward. You know, even um, placebo as a kind of um, psychoneuroimmunology kind of model, mm-hmm. there are attempts to try and understand what's going on there. So the brain affects systems like our immune system, our endocrine system as well. So it affects the chemicals that are being pumped around the body. Those chemicals are reacted to by cell systems, say the liver or the heart or something. And so you can create change in people. All of that, absolutely fine. And it can lead to a situation where, for example, if we're fighting cancer, there can be some benefit in mental techniques. You can imagine your cancer as a dragon and you're fighting it with a sword. And that can have tangible, you know, plausible, tangible effects on the cancer. Because in some way, that fantastical bit hooks into a real system and allows you to tweak that a little bit such that, you know, you can better... But then the only link to sort of um, not prove, because obviously you're not proving anything, but the only link to then sort of, I'm going to use the word prove. Okay. Um, that that you can affect, we, we know we can affect ourselves, that's placebo, if mm. that's because, you know, we're thinking in certain chemicals or whatever. The only link then, the only jump then is that I, if I can affect you. Yeah. So that's the only jump that needs to be established. It is, because it's not mediated by anything. Yeah. And that's the, the biggest problem for parapsychology is uh, its negative definition. What we're saying is something happens when it shouldn't. Okay, so it relies firstly on our having a really good understanding of what the normal methods are, what the shoulds are, mm. to say definitively, this cannot be possible under these circumstances. So... People are incredibly sophisticated and complex, very subtle ways in which we affect each other that we might be completely unaware of. And you have to clamp all those down in those situations to be sure that they don't apply. I mean, firstly, I should have said, you know, parapsychology is interested in the experiences. Mm -hmm. So we're we're very open to the idea that actually the best explanation is a conventional explanation for this or that or the other. You know, there's no being tied to um, a supernatural understanding of things. and of course, crucially as well, so as well as maybe explaining away some stuff, which I think ultimately is healthy because we want to know how things really are, yeah. not how we'd like them to be or what we uh, hope they might be or you know what a belief system suggests they should be. It is understanding reality. So that's important. But also it, it allows us to, to find ways to test those claims as well. So how can we... Um, be sure that there's something here that we don't understand yet, that science doesn't have all the answers. Mm. We need a new explanation. And so the kind of stuff we do at Northampton, a lot of that is around moving from the experiences to experiments that gather data. Yeah, is there an issue with... Is there an issue, as, as we were talking about earlier, as with sort of cognitive science, of, of only having the positive stuff get out is there an issue of only having things that show an effect um is there a file drawer yeah i mean there absolutely is so a file drawer problem is when people do experiments you know like we said before and then they only report on or publish those that seem to work out um i think frankly it's human nature when i was a phd student i was very dubious about these file drawer effects Mm. because you spend literally months putting together a study, conducting it, and analysing. Why wouldn't you publish it? Who the hell would do all that and then just leave it languishing in a file drawer? And then I've probably got a dozen studies now 
that I've not written up yet, that I've never quite gotten around to. Frankly, in that collection, there are some studies which are very significant and some that don't show anything much in particular. It might not it also might not be you having not written it. It may be the journals, you know, it's yeah, getting Yeah, there's some rejected. of that as well. There's some of that rejected. as well. Yeah. I, I think more commonly it is that earlier stage, which is to write the thing up right. in the first place. Because um, human nature is to chase the next thing. Yeah. It's always more exciting to start a new project than to finish an old one. Than to force yourself to actually yeah. write the words. And, yeah. and the problem is there's a sense that because we know the outcome of something, Everybody knows it. It's a bit very egocentric. It's like the way kids are. You know, yeah. If you tell a child a secret, you know, up to about the age of about five, they think everybody knows that secret yeah. by virtue of them knowing it. And there's, a, there's, frankly, a tacit sense among people that if we do a study and we know the outcome, it's, in a way, it's kind of out there. And That's it isn't. part of the reason behind this podcast in the first place. Yeah. Is because generally, you know, only academics are reading academic journals. Yeah. Before I came to uni, I don't think I read one, ever. Mm. You know? I mean, I've now read textbooks that had them cited and stuff. Yeah, but, but why, why should you? That, yeah, that, why that's would not I? your medium. Yeah. You know, it's the medium of scientists to talk to each other, you know. And um, if, our, if what we do is to have any value, it's got to be able to connect with, with real people, ordinary people, yeah. regular people. Um, not least because mainly they're the ones paying our wages, you know. We're paid indirectly from the public purse through student fees and things and the government contribution to the uni. Um, I think we've got to do stuff that resonates with real people and can make a difference to their lives. And that that's why parapsychology, I think, is so important because compared with many things that psychologists investigate, these seem to be quite fundamental issues or questions for, for real people. Yeah. You know, it's a real challenge. You know, whether you have a faith or a spirituality or neither of those things, it's really important to know what our nature is as human beings. Are we just this uh, biological machine, this system, when we understand it, do we understand all there is to know about people? Is there a ghost in that machine? Is there a spiritual aspect to what's going on? And if so, what can we understand about it in this lifetime, you know, on Earth? So so those are the kind of key things to explore with it. Mm. Always, with, you know, to go in very neutrally, to be truly sceptical, in terms of saying, well, whatever we might like to think is true, let's look at the evidence and yeah. base a conclusion on it, see where we are. In parapsychology, it's mixed. You know, for some phenomena, the evidence isn't very strong. It looks more like wishful thinking. And for some phenomena, the evidence is comparable with what we see for really common garden stuff that goes on in psychology. Some regular abilities, some regular capacities some of the parapsychological stuff seems very similar to that. telepathy and things, for example. In my view, there's some really good experimental evidence under control conditions that is showing an effect that shows that people seem to know stuff they shouldn't know. And it's getting a handle on that, really, understanding how that is. That's the real battle. And more than chance. That, that's all we know, really, yeah. I think, so far. We've got some kind of little glimpses that go beyond that. So absolutely in our studies, people are doing better than they should be doing if they were just guessing. Signific you know, astronomically, significantly so. So there's a problem to be solved. What makes it interesting is that it's not just a statistical blip. It seems to correlate with, it has a link to things like personality variables. Mm -hmm. So extroverts do better in studies than introverts do. Uh, people who are open to new experiences do better than those who are rather closed. Um, people who have a history of spontaneous experiences do better in controlled experiments 
than people who haven't got such a history. Those are really intriguing, suggesting some kind of lawfulness and pattern. And that's your starting point. If you want to understand something, there's got to be some consistency in it. Are you rare to parapsychology in holding that thought, though? That, I, no, that I wouldn't say so. I would say that there's a continuum of, of what you might call a, a position. I, would, I don't want to use the word belief, because if you were to talk to chemists about a chemical process, you wouldn't find that people talked about it as being an act of faith. Right. But you, but you can still have people reading evidence in slightly different ways. Yeah. So people don't necessarily agree, I don't know, uh, that um, this process is facilitated by these other uh, products, you know, those kind of things. It's well, an the interpretation. yield might be better in this way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's in that kind of context. But absolutely, people differ in terms of how they see the quality of the evidence. For some of them, I think they're slightly misguided in terms of how they elevate psychological research. I think they think that psychological research is of a higher standard than it typically is. And I think the so-called crisis that we have now for things like replication in conventional psychology supports the idea that, if anything, parapsychological standards have been higher than for other areas of psychology for quite a long time. Yeah. In terms of things such as you mentioned, so how you deal with you know, the non-publication of studies, yeah. uh, that kind of thing, in introducing controls and ensuring that experimenter bias can't play a part in the process, those things are much stronger that's, in parapsychology. That's the biggest thing I struggle with because you know, it's all well and good having a massive amount of research that shows... Um, Let's take telepathy, for example. Something happening more than chance. Mm. So there's something going on here. But you take the wide... If, if you know only one in ten of those studies done shows that, yeah. you, you may have a thousand published, but you've yeah. only published the one out of ten. You know, mm. there's nine. So either way, you still it may still end up less than chance that this thing exists. Yeah, but um, statistically, there are ways to take that into account. Right. And I think for the classic databases in parapsychology, that's that's highly unlikely that you have that many studies that are... The Gansfeld, for example, which is a technique to shift people into a mild altered state of consciousness, a bit like drifting off to sleep. Yeah. It's incredibly um, person uh, investment heavy. Yeah, so because it's a small field, the amount you would have to have done yeah. in order to get the one out of ten being positive... Exactly. It, just... it certainly would take two or three hours to do a single session. It would certainly take you maybe six months or longer to do a single study. Right. And there just aren't the people in the community to have the kinds of numbers of experiments missing that you'd need to so count. It's almost better it's a smaller community. It's evidence then that there may it's be It's one of something. the few advantages in being yeah. a small community. <laughs> um, but also when people are surveyed, and, and I think generally um, scientists are quite candid. They can be very honest, at least in private. Right. And so people like Sue Blackmore have contacted researchers, say in the Gansfeld, to say, you know, have you got any other studies you've done that you've not published? And when she gathered together those, she found that the proportion of successful to unsuccessful was about the same as for those that were published. So it wasn't a distorted picture that you were getting. Right. There's also, I think, uh, among lay people, uh, a concern about the idea of replication and the idea of, of what you should expect with a real effect. So the general perception seems to be that if something is real, so say there is such a thing as... Um, this kind of perceptual illusion, a mainstream perceptual illusion, then you should be able to see it pretty much in every experiment. Every experiment should be successful yeah. if it's a real thing. But in fact, in psychology, what we find is because people are so complicated, because there are so many factors or variables that can affect performance, you end up only with statistical replication. 
Even when something is real, it might not necessarily show itself in this particular study. Take an example like, for example, overall on average, uh, boys have slightly better visual spatial skills than do girls. Okay, It's a small difference, but it's highly significant. And I think it is probably a real difference on average that the way that boys' brains are wired is slightly different from the way girls' brains are wired. And that's a way that that gets expressed. In any particular study, that is massively outweighed by the variation within the sexes. You have some, some women who are extremely good at visual spatial tasks, some men who are extremely bad, you know, and your sampling is going to have an effect. The particular type of visual spatial task you give to people will affect how they do. How you frame the task, how the experimenter interacts with people will affect people's expectations about success and will affect how they actually do. Mm. So all of those are in the melting pot. So it will mean that although if you have hundreds and hundreds of experiments, on average, the boys will score better than the girls, there'll be lots and lots of uh, exceptions to that. Lots of girls who do better than the average boy, um, lots of boys who do worse than the average girl, all that kind of stuff is in there. So what you end up with is this kind of statistical replication. And it's not surprising then that that's what you get in parapsychology. You know, if ESP is real, if telepathy is possible in an experiment, even though you're just choosing people randomly, you know, it's an, um, a, what do you call it, sample, um, opportunity sample. Whoever is interested, who happens to be passing, can take part. Yeah. You're not selecting people. You're going to get a lot of noise. You're going to get a lot of variation in performance. Um, you know, on some occasions, it's not going to be a good trial just because of the way people are in that session. You know, they're a little bit too uptight. It's too much of a test for them. Mm -hmm. They feel that they've got to perform, so they're not behaving naturalistically, and it doesn't work out well. You know, you can kind of know that going into it. Uh, we did a PK study where we got a correlation, which was massive, between the experimenter's expectations of success and the outcome for each individual. And the mm -hmm. experimenter filled out this questionnaire when the participant was in the cubicle doing the experiment. So before we knew anything about that, all we had to go on was the initial chat. You know, the briefing session where you're getting to know the person a bit, building up some kind of rapport. So like if they were comfortable. Yeah, but it didn't yeah, it it be didn't break down into one individual dimension. So it wasn't necessarily how comfortable we are together or how optimistic you seem to be, but it was some kind of amalgamation of all those general things. Feeling that the general feeling. The general feeling. is going to go okay. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the correlation was, you know, about 0.5, you know, which in our terms is, is an enormous correlation. Yeah. It accounts for really quite a lot of the actual performance which is odd, uh, about 25% just over. Um, That's really interesting for sort of even coming out of parapsychology, just for social relationships. Absolutely. But, you know, this feeling that we get about people. Well, for me, something there. exactly. But for me, it's another way in which parapsychology is in vanguard, is um, in recognising the role of the experimenter. There's a long history of experimenter effects, and they're astonishingly powerful. Um, you get experimenter effects, so your your expectations as the experimenter get communicated to the participants, and as the good participants, what they do is they fulfil your expectations. So they produce the outcome unconsciously uh, that they think you're looking for. Mm. And you see this in situations where, for example, classic Rosenthal study was the Bloomers study, where he went into various schools and he said to teachers at the beginning of the year, based on this assessment, here are the pupils in your class that we think are really going to grow this year intellectually. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. And at the end yeah. of the year, they performed significantly better. The change in them was massive compared to the others. 
they were randomly selected. Yeah. You know, they weren't chosen for any criterion at all. But maybe the teacher interacted with them differently, responded differently to bad stuff. Uh, you know, it's like um, poor performance. They'd still be more encouraging, all that kind of malarkey. And that worked. You even see it in rat studies. So um, participants are given rats and told either that they're bright rats, that they've been genetically selected from parents who learned mazes really quickly and were very inquisitive and quick, and others that were really dull. And so their, their parents were, you know, um, couch potatoes and didn't really explore their environments, blah, blah, blah. Lo and behold, the rats performed accordingly. The bright rats were quicker and the duller rats were slower, chosen randomly. It's all about expectation. And in some way, that's even communicated to the rats. Maybe in the way you handle them, you're slightly less rough. You give them more stimulation between sessions. So they're kind of a bit more inquisitive and interested and safe. Who knows? But it can be incredibly subtle. And, and you know, we see those effects all over the place. Mm. That's why I, I com, uh, regularly say, you know, 95% of an experiment takes place between the participants' ears. You know, it's not what's going on in the environment. It's not your fancy equipment, yeah. you know, the ingenious design. It's whatever they think is going on, you know. So the talking to people, getting them relaxed. I mean, in parapsychology, a big part of that is getting out of that mold of saying that we're performing. You know, if, if ESP is real, for example, then you don't turn it on. You don't make it happen any more that you, than you make breathing happen or that you make seeing happen. You open your eyes. That's all the bit that you do. Everything else just takes care of itself, yeah. you know, and this will be the same. So we have to find a way to get participants to come into a lab and just be themselves. But when you're in a lab, that's the last thing you're going to be. Yeah. You know, we might as well put on white lab coats, mm -hmm. you know, and get a clipboard out and say, okay, I'm going to observe you very closely now. I want you to do this. And of course you don't. Mm. Um, an analogy for me has always been whenever we've done some TV filming, they always need some voiceover shots. Yeah. You know, so they get you walking down corridors and things like that or walking about in the campus. And it's really difficult for people to walk normally when you're being filmed. You suddenly, you know, because yeah. you're thinking too much about what's a natural process. That's why um, they got rid of the walk in the line for the sobriety test ah, okay. in this country. Right. They still do it in the States. But that's why they got rid of it. And the touching your nose thing they still do in the States. But right. They, they stopped doing that here because you can't walk straight. If someone yeah. asks you to walk straight, you just can't <laughs> do it even if you're not drunk. Yeah, it's a bit like going through the nothing to declare line. Yeah. Mean, everybody starts to feel a bit shifty. Yeah, I I was really nervous going through customs for no reason. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they they must take that into account because I've never been stopped. Yeah. But I, I always feel like, you know, I'm not I'm not walking nor I'm not I'm not hiding anything. I've not yeah. got a stash, you know, in my yeah. suitcase. You just feel like I don't maybe it's because we've watched too many films though. And we don't think know. we're supposed to be nervous, but Yeah, possibly. But but again, but that's part and parcel of it. You know, and in an experiment, people do think about things before they turn up and think about them, those things for themselves in the experiment. Uh, during my PhD, um, I had a situation where people did their own experiments in my experiments. Because right. I, I had a debriefing session afterwards where we talk about what was going on. And for this experiment, what I had people do was do uh, what's called a projective test. So they had to produce a drawing of a house, a tree, and a person, and they had kind of coloured pencils and pens. They could do it any way they wanted. And then I took this away to an analyst, and then they came back the next week, and I gave them a personality description based on their drawings. It wasn't really that at all. There's an element of deception, and it was a way of looking at the kind of statements that psychics use to see whether people accept them as being uniquely true, mm -hmm. you know. But during the debrief, and I was explaining the element of deception, etc., 
I discovered that quite a few of my participants built up hunches. They thought, oh, okay, well, if this is a projective test, if I do really small eyes, maybe that'll mean that I'm a suspicious person. You know, uh, I'm wary of other okay. people. Or if I drew somebody with a slightly bigger than normal head, maybe that's something to do with being egocentric or narcissistic or something. So they wanted to see if their little idea exactly. would come out as true. So they were experimenting in my experiment. <laughs> and I'm sure that happens all the time. Yeah. You know, because otherwise we'd, we'd go brain dead in those experiments. There's got to be some kind of feature or edge, a way to personalise it. And none of that's taken into account. Well, the first years say that when they're doing other people's research, mm. they said now that they're compl- doing the stats modules, so now they've completed the stats modules, they start to do questionnaires in the library of third mm. years that maybe aren't psychologists, and they can just work out what it's about and work out what the experimenter wants. Exactly. What the difference between the two groups and what the two groups are exactly. that they're trying to work out, and they just sort of... They try not to ruin it, but just by working it out, you've already ruined it. You, you have. And, and that's the problem. So Gertrude Schmeidler talks about that as the good participant effect. Because what they then do is they make assumptions about what you expect to happen, yeah. and they conform. And again, you know, they're not maybe doing this in a calculated way, but they things like a questionnaire. If you've got a questionnaire which is called an extroversion questionnaire, you don't answer each question separately. Mm. You, you first of all think, well, what kind of person am I? Do I consider myself to be? Yeah. And you answer each question from that perspective. So immediately you've lost the advantage of having a set of questions and you're getting said this kind of yeah. monolithic response. So if I think I'm an introvert, I'll just answer every extrovert question as opposite. Kind or, of, or yeah. There's the, the certainly a degree the, to that. The introvert it, answer. nudges you at least in that direction rather than discovering that you're a much more nuanced person. That, yeah. you, that your introversion is more apparent in certain areas than it is in others, which is obviously how we really are. Yeah. You know, classic pseudo-psychic statements include things like, um, you can seem much more confident on the outside than you feel inside. You know, that's true of everybody. If you're the most raving extrovert, there's be that still that one time when you have this kind of minuscule moment of self-doubt. Yeah. And if you're an introvert, you can still remember those times when things went really well, you're in the moment and you were quite confident. Because we're not, a black or white thing. We're not either or. We're always a mixture of things. Yeah. So our methods in psychology aren't enough to measure. They're not good enough to measure. They're, they're a, an imperfect instrument. They're a blunt tool. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're worthless. I'm, I'm still tied to the quantitative method. I think there's still some advantages to yeah. it. Yeah. I think often it can be complemented by more qualitative approaches, which deal with the more idiosyncratic more nuanced personal yeah I'd be from the same sort of yeah. belief system but, but even then it, it presumes things of people I don't think people necessarily have a massive amount of self insight questionnaires are a good example of this Yeah. so if you give somebody a questionnaire that they've never done before like the social desirability scale people will make discoveries about themselves in answering those questions because they've never posed those questions to themselves before Yeah. and you know it can be an act of discovery you know um, and so going into a qual approach where you ask people questions, you might not necessarily discover things about people. You may end up co-constructing things about those people. Right. You know, and there are still big pressures. You know, there's still a lot of stuff around taboo and presentation, you know. Um, and we may, it may be better sometimes to ask other people what kind of person we are. We may have these fond ideas of what kind of person we are, what we're like. But if you speak to any of that person's friends and family, they'd never describe yeah. them that way at all. I thought about that with the virtue, um, the virtue tests. 
in positive psychology. Oh, okay. Sort of where it gives you a rank of your 25 strengths and virtues. Right. Character strengths and virtues. And uh, it would be really interesting to see if you came out with the same thing as somebody else doing it for you. Yeah. And I'd yeah. almost guarantee you wouldn't. Yeah. You know, so like generosity might come out first and they're like, no, there's no, <laughs> there's no way that's you. you yeah. Know, so, yeah. Yeah. I did think that would be, be interesting. We, we always sort of skew what we uh, think of ourselves. But yeah. it's, an, it's an ego thing as well, isn't it? It's a sort of a self, it's a defense mechanism to, yeah. to yeah. not be completely honest with ourselves. Because sometimes, Sometimes we're all a bit of a piece of shit, <laughs> you know. Sometimes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, nobody is absolutely nobody's anywhere near perfect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no problem with that at all. I, I think part of our problem with this kind of conversation, though, is we still have a sense that we are a particular way, and that the problem is with the way we're trying to measure it. Right. And I think what I'm saying is, in actual fact, people aren't a particular way. You know, that actually we're riddled with uh, inconsistencies. And that's actually not a bad thing at all. It's absolutely yeah. just who we are, and we've got to come to terms with it. Absolutely. Sometimes you're fantastically generous, and sometimes to an outsider, you don't seem to be generous. Nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. And, I mean, it's all relative anyway. Yeah. You know, my generosity... I mean, there's the example of, you know, if a millionaire gives you £200, it's less than if a person gives you their last, last pound, mm. you know. Uh, so it's all relative anyway. What I consider generous, you know, my friends may not consider generous. Or they may consider me more generous than I am being. Because mm. the things I'm doing isn't that big of a deal to me, yeah. which, is, which yeah. is what that analogy is. Yeah. Which is, you know, I don't think psychologists should complain about that because that's what psychology is. Well, you know, if you exactly. want a little bit more cut and dry, then you need chemistry, I guess, where you mix two chemicals and it does this thing every time. Exactly, because that's what chemicals do. You know, they're, they're um, monotonous. You know, and and everyone is like the last, you know, and people are far from that. I mean, an example of that for me, where people over expect, is with me. I don't eat mammals, so and and it's a moral thing for me because I see other mammals as having um, a sufficiently developed sense of self that there are ethical issues around the treatment, particularly during the slaughtering process, mm -hmm. that I've got problems with, and, and so I've been like that for twenty five years or so. Um, I, I don't care about chickens. I don't think they've got a sense of self in They're quite dinosaurs. the same way. So, <laughs> yeah. so I don't have a problem, etc. Um, but then, of course, people say things like, "Well, you wear leather, don't you?" In some of your shoes, uh, and the answer is yes, uh, because practically that's just how life is. Yeah. But the fact that I don't do everything I could possibly do doesn't undermine the bit that I do do. That's right. Yeah. You know, they're completely separate. It's that's like, why people won't be vegan. Yeah. Because they get prophetized. Yes, and they get yelled at by vegans who are saying, "Yeah, well, your cleaning products are whatever tested on rats." And yeah. I, I, I didn't know, you know, I'm just sort of getting on with my life. I just decided not to eat animals yeah. so much or, or whatever. I mean, each gesture is, is independent. Yeah, you no, know, it's like you know, if you have a um, hundred quid in your pocket and you see somebody and you give that person twenty quid to get you know uh, dinner tonight, somebody who otherwise wouldn't be able to eat. You know, it's not undermined by the fact that you've still got 80 quid in your pocket. Yeah. You know, that act is an act on its own. It's like you say, you know, the context doesn't actually shape that act. I, I, in some ways, I disagree with you from you talking about the millionaire giving £200 and somebody else, because the £200 can still do the same amount of good. Well, I mean, yeah, technically it would do way more good than than if I give someone my last pound. Yeah, yeah. But... 
I think I, I was I think I was just on about how much of a big impact it is for the giver. Yeah, yeah. Not so much for the, the yeah. receiver. Um, so obviously it's more of an impact for a guy who has a million pounds in cash, let's say. Yeah. That very lucky person. Yeah. Or very hard working person, whichever. <laughs> Gives With this enormous pounds. wallet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bitcoin, maybe. Right. Gives £200 uh, pounds worth of, of Bitcoin or whatever. I don't know how a homeless person has a Bitcoin wallet. But, no. But just for the metaphor, we'll use it. Uh, or if I give the person my last my last bit of money. For, in terms of my generosity, that makes more of an impact on me as a person mm. than the £200 pound did on the millionaire. Yeah, but for um, the person yeah. receiving, yeah. it's way better to run into millionaires than it is <laughs> yeah. my last pound. <laughs> yeah, it needs to hang out on better <laughs> yeah. calibre of street corner. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It reminds me a bit of a story that Daryl Bem tells. It says, you imagine yourself, and he asks people to rate how happy people are based on this story. So you're in a queue at a cinema, and it gets to your turn to pay um, at the desk, and they say, fantastic, you're our 100,000th uh, customer ever, would like to give you a thousand dollars to spend on whatever you want and you write how happy you would be mm-hmm. okay then the next story is you're in the queue and somebody just asks can they slip in front of you because their friends are there and you agree so that's no problem they are, turn out to be the 100,000th customer and they get fifty thousand dollars and you're the 100,001st customer and they give you a set a, a, a what do you call it, like a booby prize of a thousand dollars, same as you would have got anyway. Yeah. How happy are you? And people are much less happy. And it gives a third case where somebody just barges in front of you and doesn't even ask, and they're the least happy. But of course, in all three situations, you've got exactly the same outcome. You're a thousand dollars richer than you were five minutes before. Yeah. And yet your happiness is completely impacted by the circumstance, and it's bizarre. It's kind of odd. You know, we've got to learn to separate out the act from the context. Because mm. in a way, for the recipient, it's the act that matters. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's that's a really good uh, story. That happens with lots of things, isn't it? We sort of get something and think, oh, well, we could have we could have got this if we didn't. That. It's the sh- yeah. shoulda, woulda, coulda sort of stuff. Yeah. You, know, you get mad that someone else... And that's partly what... Twitter trolls are and internet trolls. It's, yeah. it's, it comes from like a jealousy sort of thing. It's I like, think so. I could have been fifty thousand pounds richer, but like, well, you could have had nothing. Like, yeah. you could have died in a car accident yeah. this morning yeah. and not even made it here. Absolutely. Um, so I mean, we sort of get jealous. For me, I, I think self other comparisons are never a good idea. No. Um, we're in a situation where everybody can be a winner in actual fact, so long as you've got a, a sense of what winning is. You know, and for me. Winning is simply um, having enough to live on, to fulfil my needs and to support my family, things like that, yeah. and to have a fulfilling experience each day, to do something which is interesting or challenging or whatever, and that's it. And you don't need to have, you know, to win the lottery to, to have all of those things. And I have a sense that everybody can can reach that level of happiness. Yeah, Roosevelt said, "Comparison is the thief of joy." Yeah, I think it was Roosevelt. Yeah, and that's sort of more important now when you look at Instagram. Yeah. So people's Instagram is like, look at this great life I'm living. And even celebrities are doing it and lying. So like Lil Bow Wow just recently got caught taking a picture about being in a private jet and it turns out he wasn't. So like right. if, you, if you take the, the full picture and the met, because there's people that can do that, they take the full picture and there's other people in there. It's a chartered, ah, it's okay. a private jet, but it's a chartered flight. Right. Um. So it, yeah, like he. so now it's become a verb. Like doing a bow wow means posing on Instagram. And he's a millionaire. You know, he doesn't need to do that. But it's just about this this idea of 
showing that I'm doing all these wonderful things. Yeah. Which I, I feel, I felt it would probably help the podcast if I would do that. Mm. Even if I just told the truth, because our numbers are, are getting good. I say our, and I say we, it's, it's me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the numbers are getting good, but yeah. um, I feel uncomfortable saying, you know, stunting basically on Instagram like this is all the things we're doing it's a big company when it isn't like it's just a <laughs> guy with a laptop and two microphones yeah yeah um, but but yeah. it's it's values beyond that isn't it and you know as soon as you get into that kind of comparison mentality you do lose the essence of what it is which is hopefully saying something that people might be interested in hearing yeah. and, and maybe saying things in a way that gives people pause to think about stuff in a slightly different way from normal yeah, you know th- that's what any kind of teaching is all about, really. You know the details are, are really not that important. You know when you're giving a lecture on this or that, but giving you know making people stop for a second. So hold on a second, I didn't think of it that way. That that's where the merit of it is. You know where you get some kind of long-lasting effect. I think the students almost need a lesson in that. They need a lesson to learn what the lessons are, mm. that, that what university is and what it's for. And, you know, I, I get a chance to do that with my stats classes because I see them every week. Yeah. So you get a chance to sort of gauge what they're doing and, mm. and let them know gradually that, you know, your job as a first year is obviously you're learning all this stuff is to, to get everyone on a level playing field so we can go into second and third year and, and really get on with it. But it's to find something that you're interested in. Mm. And it's your job as is your entire degree. And I always say it, and it might not be popular with universities, but it, you know, if if you if you're discovering during your degree that your thing isn't psychology mm. or that it's not even education, then leave. Yeah, like you don't have it to will finish. It served its purpose. Yeah, it's mm. it's worked. Yeah, like your whole job is to find the thing you're interested in. Yeah. If you go through secondary school and sick form and and then you get a degree and your master's and you realise what you really like is making knives. Mm. You should go and make knives because mm. that, that will make you happy. Not, yeah. And you can find a way to make some money from making knives or you can, you know, do something to keep the lights on yeah. while you make knives. But you know? to, I absolutely agree with that. I think to an extent, the only way you discover what you want to do is by identifying what you don't want to do. Yeah. So these missteps are really important and you can't actually have the life that you have without them. Yeah, you know, you need to put yourself out there, try things out, and discover that some things don't sit well with you, and you can move on from it. So it wasn't a wasted effort. No, you know, it was absolutely necessary to get where you want to be at the end of it. Well, the biggest example of that for me is I taught in a secondary school, mm-hmm. so it was a. I mean, it started as a stopgap, but then once I was in a secondary, I was doing like an, an associate teacher role, mm-hmm. so supporting and mentorship and that kind of stuff, and then turned into a teaching role, uh, and then didn't want to teach anymore mm. but that teaching experience is what helped me get what I'm doing now yeah and the opportunity to do the PhD yeah. and now teach a completely different style and different kind of well an audience that listens mm. you know a student audience yeah yeah um, so you know the, the bad had I not done that I may not have got the PhD opportunity in the exactly. first place yeah so you know I needed to do the crap Anyway, yeah. and, and yeah. I was also sort of working in the morning and cleaning before work and doing another job and doing whatever. Mm. And had I not done all of that, I may not be able to function on no sleep and having <laughs> yeah. a child. And now I know I can function on no sleep. Yeah. I know if I have something that needs to be done, I can get it done. Mm. There are enough hours in the day. Yeah, I just can't do it every day. No. But, you know, you can. I can smash something out. Or, yeah. And I, I understand sort of a mastery 
complex. So I can be bad at something. Mm. But if I keep doing it often enough, and that comes from sport. I'm mm-hmm. sure other people get it from other things. But if I keep doing it often enough, um, I can serve my ambition, which might get lofty at times. But you know, it's better to try that, and. But that, I think that last point to pick up that first is really important because I think too often we treat something said like the act of writing um, as as if it's something very delicate. We have to wait for the muse to strike to whisper in our ear. And we need to have just have the conditions just right. And over time, I've, I've seen that as being more of a kind of prima donna position, mm. really. You know, you've got famous writers, you know, George Orwell, was a classic example, but Terry Pratchett more recently. Your writing's a job. You turn yeah, up at the morning and you do it until yeah. another time. And sometimes what you write isn't very good, but then that's what editing is for. And you kind of revisit it. And it's surprising how often in doing that, then you work through you know good stuff emerges yeah you don't have to wait for some special inspiration um so that's a really useful lesson i think to learn that sometimes you just get down and do it i hate writing i'm i really don't like doing it i frankly think i'm I'm good at it but it um it doesn't at all come easily to me and it's took a while to get to where i am with it um but it's like it's like um getting blood from a stone very often but you've got to force yourself i hate starting Mm. Like it's difficult for me to start. Like I'll have all these other ideas mm. that I want to go and do that instead. Mm. <laughs> but it's literally it all. I've recently noticed it all comes from my own like insecurity mm. that I think I don't know how to start. But I should just start. Like it doesn't matter if it's shit. It doesn't matter. What's the worst you can do? You just delete it. Yeah. If and, it came to it. And I've, uh, there's been times when I've written stuff and I've used none of it. Mm. You know, it will, I've still got it. It will go somewhere else. It might be useful at another point. Yeah. Yeah. But probably not. Yeah. But hey, doesn't matter. Yeah. The, the important thing is that 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 little battle I had with myself, forcing myself to write, was the skill. It wasn't yeah. about getting the the end product. Yeah. You know, so even in terms of if it's for the PhD, it's not about getting the PhD done necessarily. Mm. It's about forcing myself to write a PhD. That's yeah. that's the learning experience yeah. Yeah. for me, because then I can go and apply that elsewhere to things that you know, aren't so many pages that yeah. people will read <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, it reminds me a bit of some other stuff in positive psychology the idea of, of self-labeling you know and I think we're probably too quick to limit ourselves or to have habitual ways of doing certain things and not experiment enough to discover that actually there might be a better way for us to behave you know so these are good examples of that you know mm. it's easy to label yourself then as something like not a good writer for example and then you find ways to avoid that, yeah. you know, lower it down your priority list. And, you know, you need to fight against those if you want to discover who you are, really. And you were talking before about your teaching experience. I guess in some ways that was a pivotal experience for me. So when I'd finished my undergraduate and before I started my PhD, I did teacher training for a year. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason for that was because I was incredibly shy and I wouldn't be somebody who actively contributed. Yeah, I was. In, exactly. So in seminars or workshops and things. I'd be the last one to put my hand up or say anything. And that's ridiculous. If you want to get into academia, you're taking leading seminars, you're giving lectures in front of people, you've got to grasp the nettle. Yeah. So I did this teacher training course for that reason. And the teacher training course in some ways was was a disaster because the talk component was really boring and, and seemed really quite pointless. I, I was only about 22, 23 then. And the other people in the course typically were quite mature. They'd be in their 30s and 40s coming back to education, having done a degree later in life and wanting to give something back. 
and they all treated it as a war of attrition. Right. They were getting through this in order to get the qualification to become teachers uh, at HE level. So it was kind of sixth form, really. Yeah. Um, and that seemed complete anathema. You know, we've got a group of people teaching teachers who really don't know how to engender enthusiasm and engagement and things. It was bonkers. Mm. But it gave me an opportunity to do what you did, which was I had these two placements, six weeks each, in uh, colleges doing a half timetable, 11 and a half contact hours a week. And it was a nightmare. You know, yeah. I I was asleep or eating or I was working. I did yeah. absolutely nothing else. And it was brilliant. You know, I was glad it was over after the six weeks, but it really was a, a, the making of me in terms of knowing I could do this stuff. To such an extent, I'd actually dropped out of the program. I never got that t- teacher training qualification. It I, served its purpose. Yeah, I ended up teaching. I got a contract at one of the colleges ended up just working there till the summer, you know. And But it was, it was really important just in getting me in that mindset of knowing that I could say things to people in a way that engaged them, that caused them to think a little bit yeah. and encourage them to work. Not all the time, obviously, you know what it's like working yeah, yeah. with 17 and 18-year-olds. They absolutely do what they want to do. <laughs> yeah. um, but there was enough there to know that, you know, I could probably make a fist of it. Yeah. We've done... Two hours. And I'm running out of disc space. And I, I'm running out of bladder space. This <laughs> bottle of water that you're giving me. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, I've only got ten minutes left of disc space. So, we'll have to end it here. But, um, thank you very much for coming on. It was really no problem. Cool. Thank you. Anytime. And next time we'll talk about parapsychology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll do some more. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the Trapidemic podcast, you can support it. There's a few ways you can do this. You can share, um, like on social media platforms, tell your friends. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast app you prefer. You can write a review on iTunes. A nice five-star review helps us in the ratings and helps the podcast gain more traction. You can also support via Patreon financially if you want to. Podcasts will always remain free. Uh, whether it remains ad-free or not, uh, I haven't decided yet. But with enough Patreon funding maybe it will remain ad free you can pledge as much as you want monthly or as a one off and uh, it would enable not financial gain on my part but uh, to pay for travel and expenses for guests so thank you for listening this has been the Trapidemic Podcast episode 8 with Professor Chris Rowe and me Alex Wilson Thank you.